0: Ladies and gentlemen, before we get started on the show, I want to address matters in the world outside of cinema for a moment. In the last two weeks, there have been two major mass shootings in this country, one in Georgia and one in Colorado. What I am letting you guys know here is that in the show's liner notes, there are links provided that can direct you to places to assist those affected by these terrible mass shootings. Um, If you have the ability to contribute, wonderful. If you have the... uh, ability to share wonderful um hopefully these can assist those who need it the most at this difficult time thank you very much for listening to me for a second and now i will take you back to henry who will then take it back to me and marshall Rosales for a discussion on house of wax thank you for your time ladies and gentlemen
1: ladies and gentlemen the following podcast contains coarse language strong thematic themes talk of history and context terrible imitations of Hollywood figures and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air.
2: yesteryear ballyhoo review
0: good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome 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 to the yesteryear ballyhoo review many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside so hurry and get your seats tonight the ballyhoo presents a blood-curdling tale so shocking that to experience it in only two dimensions would provide only half the terror Yes, boys and girls, Three Dimensions is the only way to wind through the wonders and terrors of Professor Jared's exhibits of history and horror with Andre de Toth's 1953 chiller, House of Wax, in 3D. So put on your special polarized Ballyhoo 3D glasses, see the show, and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds.
2: Mr. Wallace. Professor. It's so good. Oh, forgive me shaking hands with me is an unpleasant experience my hands are no longer hands sit down please oh this is igor he's a deaf mute he's one of my assistants i'm going to open another wax museum under a different name it startled you eh seeing me here that's an understatement i thought you were dead jared is dead i am a reincarnation when i read this letter and saw your signature i thought somebody was playing a joke on me I still don't understand how you escaped from the fire. It's a mystery to me too, Mr. Wallace. All I can remember is that I tried to get out of my studio. I failed at first, but here I am. What a frightful experience. Somehow I made my way to the house of a doctor. Oh well, I still have my limbs, though they won't bear the weight of my body. As for my hands, they're no use to me now. As a sculptor, I can't control them, but they serve for ordinary functions. But you're beginning again? With the help of my pupils, yes. I'm rebuilding my exhibition from the ground up. I'm going to give the people what they want. Sensation, horror, shock. Send them out in the streets to tell their friends how wonderful it is to be scared to death.
0: Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. After the success of the 3D film Buona Devil, Warner Brothers Studios leapt at 3D as the answer to their box office woes in a world being consumed by the so-called idiot box. A studio known for technological innovation, Warners dusted off a film from the 30s and refashioned it into a horror experience with the deft hand of one-eyed director Tot's sense of atmosphere and precision. And it also showed the beginnings of what would become horror royalty with the participation of Vincent Price. It is a picture that still lives on on in our minds, whether through terror or tech, and one that is more than worthy of a discussion on these and many more grounds, but we cannot do it alone. With us today is a writer, director, cinematographer, editor, sound designer, and jack of any other trade that I didn't mention up at the top. He is also an avid enthusiast of 3D tech, and he's here to chat about said technology and what it has to do with Jared's diabolical plans of murder and art. Please welcome Marshall Rosales.
1: Hello there.
0: All right. So um, I'm looking at the clock right now. It's 548. So we'll be done by 2 a.m. Gotcha. All right. Cool. How you doing, Marshall?
1: (laughs) You know, I'm doing wonderful. I am. I am absolutely delighted to discuss all things involving and around this film. And um, I uh, am just going to have to issue a, you know, a sorry, not sorry for however long it takes.
0: Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, don't worry. I mean, so uh, for anybody who's listening who might be wondering what the fuck we're talking about, um, if you didn't listen to The Shamley Silhouette, um, then you obviously don't know who Marshall is, because Marshall was the guest on The Shamley Silhouette that appeared the most times, and he is responsible for the longest uh, recorded conversations in the show's history, which I think our longest one was four hours talking about... Um, the four, the three Hitchcock misses. Um, it's either that or it's the Young and Innocent episode. Both of them are within the grand scheme of like the longest episodes we've ever done. Um, but like what's what's interesting is the Young and Innocent episode is so long, and yet we managed to. Um, we're basically only talking about like a one an hour and a half movie. So (laughs) it's (laughs) yep. Um, but uh, for anybody who doesn't know. Marshall. Um, he's also a filmmaker in his own right. And he's uh, been stuck in quarantine like the rest of us. And the last time I spoke with him, we were still in quarantine. And now we're not we're in quarantine, quote unquote, if we have the ability to not, um, you know, uh, work outside. But uh, but Marshall has been sitting around and catching up on films of the past as well as the present. So first of all, ask Marshall, how are you still holding up in a world full of COVID?
1: Um, you know i'm I'm doing well I'm doing a lot better than I have been uh, over the past many months I think that uh a lot of you know kind of time of self-reflection and sort of realignment to this new world that we live in um and kind of accepting it for what it is and kind of getting past those those months of the well, maybe next week it'll get better. Maybe next week it'll go better. And instead sort of settling into like, okay, this is this is just how we live now um, has been good. I think I'm arriving at a good place and work is starting to pick back up a little bit. We're kind of figuring out how to um, do productions safely um, now, which is phenomenal. Um, so yeah, it's good. And, and I've also devoted a lot of my time and energy into starting up my own website which is not necessarily film related there's going to be some film stuff on there cuz it's a big part of who i am but um i'm uh, i'm getting that all nice and started up and so that's been kind of a nice distraction it, it, as well is
0: the sound in the background you starting it up <laughs> i heard a no, big that's... room back there
1: oh sorry about that that is uh, <laughs> yes someone in the parking lot i live in
0: no 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 don't worry this is good this is good sound design can i hire him to be <laughs> to be our sound man <laughs> Done and done. <laughs> done and done. Yes, it's perfect. Um, no. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You've got the website going, and as far as productions are concerned, we kind of had a sort of test run of that. Um, with Leather Brown, which you were, um, an immensely uh, important part of how that project ended up turning out the way it did. Um, with your wonderful sound design, because you took a you took a big load off my shoulders. Going like, I'll just take care of this. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you yeah it was a joy to be to be involved with it it was a cool project
0: yeah and it's been getting a lot of it's been getting a lot of fascinating response like everybody's loving it and i'm just like well thank you um here's the people that you can get in touch with and (laughs) i'm gonna just go in the corner and not accept the compliment because i apparently don't know how to do that um (laughs) uh but uh but yeah no it's 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 wonderful so like yeah based on like between that experience. And I mean, you've also been on set in, in other capacities within the safety zone and whatnot. So you've got a good idea of how it can function. So, um, and I'm glad that you're going to be getting back into the full swing of things. Um, cause obviously COVID kind of kicked your ass a little bit when it came to regular work. Um, I-
1: absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I own a production company and that's my, that's my day job. Um, and, yeah, when when the pandemic really hit, um, you know, for starters, companies basically scattered and most of their employees were working from home if possible. And a lot of the clientele that I work with were sort of more office oriented um, businesses and things like that. And so um, even if it was safe to be on set, which it wasn't at that, you know, we because we just didn't know what we were dealing with. Um, the people to really film weren't around and so now we've we've figured out um ways to handle that to be able to get a version of what we're needing um as far as you know the video concerns are um are considered or are concerned the video right. considerations are concerned that's what I'm trying to say um <laughs> you said it don't worry <laughs> and, and uh yeah so you know it's just sort of like I think that for me I just, I am not, my my number one focus on set is safety. Um, I don't want to go into production just to get something shot. So if if safety protocol isn't going to be followed, then I'm not really interested in taking a job. And so I've been very adamant about that and we're figuring it out and business is starting to pick up again. So it's great.
0: Yeah. And like in the case of Leather Brown, it was kind of a a, a more mitigated risk scenario with it just being a house with plenty of open space to just separate and spread out. Um, and so we didn't have, we didn't have the same considerations that like, if you have to go into an office building or if you've got like limited access to a place that you have to take those factors in. So, um, the fact that you're figuring it out is a, is an immense wonderful thing that you're doing. So, um i'm I'm glad that you're getting back to work um but more importantly marshall i'm glad that you're back to podcasting and i'm glad that you're making your debut on the ballyhoo because you haven't come on the ballyhoo yet it took so many episodes to get to you um now this is (laughs) we're not going to delve too deep into this but like our basically us trying to plan this episode ended up taking three months (laughs)
1: Did. Well, yeah, that's I mean, I think, yeah, that's just pandemic time. I don't know whether it's been three days. We've been trying to work on this or three months.
0: Oh, pandemic time. It's been five years. So (laughs) but we're here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm
1: I'm very, very honored to be uh, asked into this new endeavor of yours. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, excited to talk about this film.
0: And yeah. So here's what I want to ask off the bat for you before we get into uh, House of Wax in 3D. Um, since this is your first appearance on Ballyhoo, can you tell the audience a little bit about your experience with Golden Age Hollywood? Like, what is your entry point for it, and what is your history with it, if any?
1: Ooh, yeah, absolutely. Um, my, I do not have um, a ton of, ton of experience with Golden Age Hollywood. I think that, um, you know, growing up, um, my mom was sort of she was very romantic about this era of film um especially around the 50s that was sort of you know the, the films that she kind of grew up with and around. Um, but like growing up I was just I was pretty I think unfortunately typical in like not not very interested in anything that was black and white and the old films are just kind of the old films and that sort of thing and it wasn't until uh, film school really that I was able to or forced to uh, is more appropriate. <laughs> strap him to the uh, table, strap him them. to the table. <laughs> exactly. He yeah, has like, you will watch these old films. You're just and, like, no, um, no. <laughs> Yeah. It, uh, well, it was just sort of like, oh, that's, you know, that my, my understanding of it was just like, that's old stuff. And I don't want to watch old stuff. I want to watch the new stuff. And, right. <laughs> um, then just being completely blown away by what was possible with um, these gigantic cameras and, you know, less than a century of history and experience into this new industry um, under these people um, with this, you know, the commerce side of it and the art side of it um, and just really being kind of blown away. And I, I still am never one to reach for a golden age film sort of like if I'm sitting down to watch a movie, but anytime that I am like of the mindset to darn it, you're going to sit down you're going to watch this. I am like nine times out of 10, unless it's Topaz just absolutely delighted. Or
0: you could just go fuck yourself right now, Marshall. God damn you. <laughs>
1: God damn you. Look,
0: I get it. You don't like my cool little spy movie. That's not as great as my other movies. We just, can we just leave it alone? I can't fucking deal with it anymore. Oh God. <laughs> Why'd you have to upset Sorry, him, Hitch.
1: Marshall? I still love Hitch. I just—I uh, don't like you. Let's just say that's not my favorite stone. How about that? <laughs>
0: okay, fair enough. So, okay, so you don't really—you this is not your natural gravitation point—and um, but you did, you, having done all the Shamley that you did, you ended up kind of getting like a big old injection full of Golden Age Hollywood by way of one director, for the most part. Um, t- between 2019 and 2020, and you actually, you, I-, I ended up subjecting you more, more or less, to more of the Hitchcock misses than the Hitchcock hits, um, which I loved. Yeah, and also that should be a an album called Hitchcock Hits.
1: <laughs> I dig <dang laughs> uh, it. Yes,
0: that'd be good. I don't know what I don't know what kind of music Hitchcock makes. It's not Bernard Herman music. Oddly enough, it's like transcendental meditation music. <laughs> um, but uh, so okay then here's another question for you in regards to our subject today. Um, Now, anybody who's already heard the Shamley silhouette and all of its uh, episodes, you'll recall that we did an episode on dial in for murder in 3d. And in which point we talked a lot about 3d technology, Um, but we were also talking about hitch. So the conversation was more hitch trended and not towards 3d in general. And I think that house of wax is a, prime film to talk about or to lead us into a broader discussion of 3d um but marshall you are one of the rare advocates for 3d in the film going world and what i mean by that is i think that wow oh my god the bells
1: the bells (laughs) yeah sorry i figured you'd probably want to cut my audio side of this out because just you know, the Catholic Church has to announce to everyone every hour that it exists. No, so, no,
0: no. This is Golden Age-related. Sanctuary!
1: Sanctuary! Uh, yeah, every hour I am Quasimodo. The bells! <laughs> the bells!
0: And then you just have a bunch of gargoyles, like, singing one of them's voice by Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> uh,
1: yes, exactly. That would be so much Preferable to this. Apologies.
0: Wow. This is so eventually. this is wonderful. No, I'm keeping this in. <laughs> the bells. <laughs> you know what it is? It's Henry Jared letting people know that his wax museum is open.
1: <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah, there you
0: go. Um, but so anyway, so back to the what I mean by the uh uh one of the few advocates of three D in the film going world is is that I think that there's an impression when it comes to filmmakers, um, especially growing up when we did in the age of Avatar, that mm-hmm. you would take a stand where you would admire the 3D tech and praise it where it was deserved, or you would just you know stick up your nose in the air and go like, hmm, it's not real cinema. You need to just have a flat screen and two people in the kitchen talking about their problems. Good day. And... I don't think that's fair obviously and as you kind of made me a convert to 3D and its artistic possibilities I'd like you to tell the audience basically what your why your passion for 3D exists and where does it stem from
1: Oh yeah um it um honestly like it's it's just really simple for me that I think that um 3D like color or sound or surround sound or different aspect ratios are, uh, is just another filmmaking tool. Um, and there are some stories that lend themselves to being told um, in 3D um, and can be aided by uh, 3D. And there are some that maybe aren't. And at the end of the day, it really is just sort of that, that simple to me that I think that anytime, time. Anytime you see any tool of filmmaking being used as a gimmick, again, be it color or sound or an aspect ratio, then it is gonna sour an audience to what that experience is. Um, and maybe even to that particular tool or piece of technology and, and 3d is no different. Um, so i think that watching a film that is designed around being viewed in 3d is really a magical experience um because it can it because it's being utilized as as a form of storytelling um, as opposed to just a you know an amusement park ride and sometimes an amusement park ride is fun and that's that's a wild ride um you know, I think like I, I would let I would point to a movie like San Andreas, which is an amusement park ride, yeah. top to bottom.
0: Oh yeah, very much, and, so. and it's
1: not afraid to be that. No, but that experience in three D is so much more fun as an amusement park ride than just watching it in two D. Right. Um. So I think that you know, just me as a as a visual storyteller, whether I'm approaching a project as a director or a cinematographer or both. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of affinity for 3d on that level, but also I have to say that from an audience member, even a bad movie in 3d is more tolerable, I guess it doesn't make it good. It's never going to make it good to me, but, um, if I'm watching a movie that just, Right. If I'm watching a movie that just like is not connecting with me in any way, shape, or form, um, and if anyone's looking for an example, I would point to like Batman v Superman uh, or <laughs> Justice League. Those are fun rides in 3D, and so I can sit back and disconnect from being on a on a storytelling ride that I'm just not connecting with and enjoy the ride visually. And so as far as like how I spend my time as an audience member and whether I'm going to walk away from a film feeling like it was maybe a waste or something like that, 3D just makes it a little bit more fun and a little bit better. So from that standpoint, too, is like, yeah, why not? You just made me realize that I one of my biggest regrets in
0: life is not seeing Martha, Martha save Martha in 3D. <laughs> Oh, that, actually that... <laughs>
1: interestingly enough um even that scene plays in two d in uh in three d really because okay. it's just it's just that flat of a delivery it's, it's that flat uh, of deli-
0: it, flat of a delivery flat of an execution flat of an idea god damn <laughs> yeah i i've told you like i've i i i remember seeing that movie the first time in the theater and i was so i was so like Brainwashed into going like, no, Ben Affleck as Batman has to be good because I don't like the the amount of hate this has been getting. And then as I I went back to the movie th- two different times after that, and then finally I just went, yeah, this is bad, guys. This is really bad. I'm like, it's it's like some people when they went into Phantom Menace and they're like, well, maybe it's better the second time you watch it, and you're like, no, 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 this this doesn't this is not how this works. <laughs> um, but uh, but we're not here to talk about Batman v Superman. Although I do love making fun of that title every day. Um, so, okay, so you are you you kind of get an, an appreciati- appreciation out of it, both from the technical acumen and the artistic acumen, but also just a pure level of enjoyment. Um, uh, and one of the things that we talked about with the Dial M for Murder episode was that when filmmakers are aware of how to use the technology, the experience is enhanced fivefold. And I know you talked a lot about One of the best examples being Pacific Rim because Del Toro supervised that 3D to make sure it was correct because he couldn't shoot it in 3D because of the technical limitations on set. Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, the movie was designed for 3D. Um, They just ended up realizing that it was going to slow down production and ultimately be, one, less expensive to do a post-conversion even though del Toro put his foot down and wanted a full 12 week post conversion and not a rushed one. Um, but also in doing a post conversion, they were going to be able to have more control over the 3d effect than if they had shot it in 3d. So for all of those reasons, it's just, it was a movie designed and controlled top to bottom to be an amazing 3d experience. And it is.
0: Yeah. And so, um, which I think we ended up seeing it in 2d. I went with, Uh, Andrew Bueno to it. And I think we
1: saw it in 2D. So we missed out on that. But... um, Well, the opening, the opening sequence, the sort of cold open of that film before the title comes up Mm -hmm. is what I show to everyone who wants to know what 3D in a home experience is like. I put them on my couch, I hand them some 3D glasses and I put on, I think it's probably eight minutes long, just that whole opening sequence in Pacific Rim. And uh, that's, that is sort of my... Uh, my demo material for my home theater.
0: Right. That's a, that's thinking about that image. That's a good one. And next time I'm next time when, when we're able to reunite in person without it being a huge issue, um, I I think Pacific rim and the movie we're going to discuss today are two that I need to sit down and watch on your 3d home setup because Marshall's got a projector and a 3d setup. So he's got a super nice way to kick back to these 3d movies. Um, I will, I will give you my history with 3d in brief nutshell. Um, we went to avatar. Uh, I went to avatar as did everybody, uh, me and a couple of fellows from film school. My freshman year, uh, went on mid at midnight, um, which looking back on it now, I'm wondering why we did that because I knew we'd be up till three or four in the morning. Um, but, um, but we had fun. It was it definitely definitely a roller coaster ride? Um, and prior to that, the only other three D experience that I had was Spy Kids three D Game Over, where they had the anaglyph um, oh. uh, glasses. Or I'm trying to remember because we've talked about how even like true three D still had um, uh, polarized lenses, um, and that the anaglyph one is a different, whole different thing entirely. Uh,
1: Yes. So let's, yeah, we can dispel that myth again. I know we talked about it um, in the dial M episode, but the, the anaglyph 3d and what that is, is I think most people know it as the sort of red lens, blue lens glasses. Um, You will also from time to time see a green lens or magenta lens. Um, That was a 3d um, effect that was designed for print or black and white imagery when you see that applied to a color version of something that is a bastardization of the 3D process of a film that was actually thought shot in 3D color and it makes the- James Cameron cry at night <laughs> yes exactly yes um so yeah even the films uh from you know the 3D craze in the 50s uh, were shot in color and you used polarized lenses. It was a extremely similar technology and approach to going to see a three d film today
0: right and that 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 experience has the anaglyph ones in particular were the cheap solution for. A studio like Dimension, when they put out Spy Kids 3D Game Over in um, on DVD, they gave a 3D option for it, and they had the Anaglyph glasses, and there was instructions on how to adjust your telev- your tube television, to make it less of an eye strain. Which I'm, which looking back on it now, given that it's that company, I'm like, I don't think they knew what they were talking about ever. Um, but in in regards to 3D after and in, in a post avatar world i remember working in a movie theater where the whole name of the game was tagging tacking on a ticket uh, an additional ticketing fee for the 3D technology so we had the dis- you had the choice of 2D or 3D for the most part and uh in the onslaught that happened the only film that i had seen uh in the immediacy after uh, avatar that I loved in 3D was Jackass 3D, which sounds like a weird thing to say out loud. But if we're talking about a movie experience where the designed purpose of 3D is to kind of fling it in your face, which is, which is one of its functions, but it's not the, but it's not the same function that everybody uses. Cause there's other uses for 3D such as extending out the space and, um, some have looked at it as like looking at it a theatrical experience, like with dial in for murder, we're kind of getting a version of a theatrical experience, like a stage experience. Like, so you're seeing like a the, the way it's the way Hitchcock shot it. It almost looks like you're watching a box theater. Um, and then obviously Hitchcock uses other techniques within that to create a more immersive experience. It's kind of about immersing you in that world to the point where he's pushing in hard on images of, can hands with keys on in them or in the case of the telephone uh the uh using a fake finger to uh dial a phone um which we talked about as like one of those workarounds he had in order to work with the 3d camera um but jackass 3d kind of fit the bill for what i initially thought 3d was meant to do which is just like okay all we've done is found a way to not make it a headache for people to sit through um and Jackass 3D I mean Marshall I'm sure I'm sure you saw it like it's a fun time for a 3D movie like you're just watching an extended episode of jackass but it it's mm-hmm. it's more than enough fun to get you by now uh the 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 one time that I saw a 3D film where I was absolutely balled over was Hugo Martin Scorsese's Hugo in 2011. um and I and it's it had the 3d part of it had very little to do with Scorsese so much as just like he found the right story to tell that kind of big screen immersive experience that 3d can provide and offer while also playing with the idea of if you're going to make a movie about George Melies and creating movie magic, well, what's the newest form of movie magic? It's 3d. And somebody like Scorsese goes to somebody like James Cameron and says, how do you use this technology? And, Jim Cameron and his people teach Scorsese and his people how to use it. And that's when you get a really good 3D
1: movie now. Yeah. And the- what a wonderful, wonderful connection, because before making Hugo, mm-hmm. Scorsese actually sat his entire cast and crew down and screened a 35 millimeter dual projector 3D print of House of Wax for them to see how this is done well. Yep. And that's a that's the
0: I would argue that's the correct film to show them, because um, I don't know if Dial in for Murder would give them the same uh, uh, impression that they're looking for. Because Hugo, Hugo and House of Wax kind of fall into similar territory where they are creating an, a a very um, vibrant, outlandish experience. Because Hugo does take place in a very like slick, sleek, uh, clearly a manufactured train station. Um, And, you know, it it kind of works within the same aesthetic, too, as House of Wax in terms of the time period. Um, And I think that after Hugo, though, I don't think I saw a 3D movie that came close to that experience ever. Now, I didn't see Pacific Rim in 3D. Um, and I didn't see Doctor Strange in 3D IMAX, which is what I was told was one of the most immersive experiences people had at a theater that year. Um, mm-hmm. uh, now, I don't know if they're just talking about the psychedelic scenes where, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch is getting flicked out of his own body and he's like, whoa, no, I'm in the Matrix, not really. Um, and so I have not seen it since then. Now, since that time, though, since even Doctor Strange, 3D has been on a decline again. Um, initially, the tech was so popular to our modern um, our modern sphere that they were developing 3D TVs and, in your case, the ability to have 3D projectors. So, um, or or adjusting your projectors to whatever setting. And now it it's and they even put out 3D discs. One of the things that House of Wax uh, resurged with was when they made these three D TVs, Warner Brothers put out a 3D Blu-ray of House of Wax along with a 3D Blu-ray of Dial In for Murder. So suddenly people could see the 3D versions of these 3D movies that up until then they'd only seen in 2D because that was what was available.
1: Um, well and and on that point, I just like I I I know we haven't even started talking about the film yet, but I just I, I have to throw Props to Warner Brothers. When you say they put out a three D Blu Ray of House of Wax, what they actually did was spend over three hundred thousand dollars on a restoration of this film, and what people can see in three D on the three D Blu Ray is better than probably over ninety nine percent of the House of Wax audience saw. There was there were some uh, Warner Brothers studio led. Uh, screenings where everything was perfectly timed and they were under absolute uh, control of the of the exhibition of the film, and those were probably pretty close to like what we're seeing now. And it was actually with direct prints off of the negative, which has since been destroyed. But the restoration on this film and the work that they did is like absolutely dumbfoundingly incredible and, so, and just all of the props to them for devoting the time and energy and money to that.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. We're here, we here at the Ballet who are very big supporters of Warner Brothers archive um, Warner Brothers, Blu-ray and home entertainment systems, because Warner Brothers does the great work of really curating their work in a way that no other studio mainstream studio does because um, I, I don't put criterion in this same camp because criterion uh, licenses out titles if we're talking about a company that directly goes from its goes through its library and restores things Warner Brothers is the one that does it the best uh, in regards to that kind of restoration actually before we jump into it what happened to the negative like did they did it just fall into disrepair after they scanned everything?
1: Yes, it, it uh, yeah, it's just sort of one of those things that was just sort of like lost to time and restoration. Um, but uh, in in creating what we have available on the disc, I think they had, I want to say four or six different versions of the print that were each scanned in 4K mm. and then Combined and used to make up for where there was extensive damage that couldn't be repaired. Like, I mean, just like the work in this was absolutely like backbreakingly incredible.
0: Okay, because okay, my worry was that the negative was burned by Matthew in order to get the insurance money from Warner Brothers, so that he could just go off and marry, uh, marry that that <laughs> flimsy broad. No, yeah. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it it very well could have been. Yes, yeah, that is for sure.
0: Yeah. And that was also a not so clever segue into the movie House of Wax. Um, now, we're not just talking about a 3D film. We're talking about a horror film, Marshall. So welcome to the horror club. Um, House of Wax has a legacy beyond just this movie, both before it and afterward. Um, It actually stems initially from a movie called Mystery at the Wax Museum, uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933, directed by former topic of discussion, Michael Curtiz, um, and um, actually under the production supervision of Halby Wallace and Henry Blankey, two producers from Warner Brothers who would end up being influential for two different modes of Bogart's uh, film career success because Halby Wallace does Casablanca and Henry Blankey is the producer of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Um, And I do want to talk about The Mystery of the Wax Museum on another episode with you because that's a movie where two-color technicolor is used and it's a two-color technicolor something that we discussed with uh, King of Jazz is a form of color that is kind of beautiful to look at because it's not... Three strips, so it's not giving you a full, like, it's not giving you the full range of color. So they're working between this kind of red and green scale. Um, but House of Wax is initially stems off of Mystery of the Wax Museum, and that's based off of a three act play called The Wax Works by Charles S. Belden. Um, now before. They even think about remaking how Mystery of the Wax Museum into what becomes House of Wax. Um, uh, The 3D craze is basically what innovates it as something to do as something to put out there in 3D. This really kind of starts with a guy named Milton Gunsberg. Um, He's the innovator of the 3D movement in the fifties. He had been working, um, around with the idea of a natural vision 3d process to remove, um, th- to remove the eye strain, um, and to basically create an immersive experience. And they tried it off, tried it out with a hot rod film, a 3d stills for a hot rod film called, um, sweet chariot. And they use real, uh, the, they use their natural vision process. Um, that process is then used for Buona devil. And then, Warner Brothers sees this and goes, well, shit, this is the answer to our problem. We make a 3D, we start making 3D movies. They're not the only studio to do it, but Jack Warner kind of jumps on it. Um, and I don't know, what, do you, do you, do you know much? You've seen Buona Devil. I'm probably the one here who hasn't. Um, I do no, know that I have not seen Buona Devil. Okay, it's directed by Arch Obler, who was known for the Lights Out radio program series, and it's, one of those things where apparently he would brag a lot about making the first 3D movie. And I'm like, that's an interesting thing to be bragging about given your extensive legacy and redefining horror stories for an entire generation of people. For you to be like, no, nah, no, nah, I, I made the 3D movie, man. I made the 3D movie the only one that worked. <laughs> like, just, it's kind of freaking insane. Like just to think that that's the only thing that... And he's proud of like, no, no, the lights out was bullshit. Buona devil was the shit. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Warner brothers says like, okay, we're going to put this film together. And amongst the people they cast in this film, this isn't just a 3d tech innovation. This is kind of the horror debut of Vincent price. Um, Vincent price, a, an actor that I don't think, any, but I don't think anybody living currently hasn't seen him in at least one thing because there's so much of his stuff available in the public domain <laughs> um, from his work with Roger or or at least it's easier to access his work with Roger Corman than one would assume. Um, but there's also films like The Last Man on Earth which is readily available on bootleg like crazy. Um, but what, what's your knowledge base on Vincent Price, Marshall, apart from, you know, Thriller and Tim Burton.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, Vincent Price to me is not dissimilar to who Hitchcock was to me prior to uh, all of the Shamley, you know, watching and, and research that I did is he was just this like wonderful, beloved figure of yesteryear that was just like incredibly endearing and so like warm and even the creepy parts that he played, just like having just that wonderful glint in his eye. Um, But I really wasn't exposed to a lot of his work. I just, I more knew about him as a cultural icon than being intimately, um, you know, aware of um, any of his work.
0: Price is uh, an interesting figure. So he's born in 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri um and he goes to um the Milford Academy in Connecticut and he deg- graduates with a degree in English and a minor in art history from Yale University um and he worked on a campus humor magazine called the Yale Record um and then he um began his acting career in London in 1935 performing with the Orson Welles Mercury Theater um and then gets into Hollywood. He starts working as a character actor. His first film is called service deluxe. And he then cements himself as a, as a reputable actor to look out for um, with the movie, Laura. Now, prior to Laura though, he is in, uh, uh, well, so he, this is his, Laura is like the film that gets him like beyond just a character, like a, a, a character actor here and there. Before this, he's in Tower of London with Boris Karloff. Uh, And then after that, he's in The Invisible Man Returns, um, where he is not really seen on screen, but that voice is so recognizable even that young that he makes an impression. Um, And he would actually end up reprising that role of The Invisible Man as a voice only at the end of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. So when Abbott and Costello are escaping and everything's back to normal they're like well we're never going to run into any monsters ever again and you know you suddenly see a, a a match lit and a cigarette being smoked and he goes how do you do i'm the invisible man and then aben and castillo freak out in their boat and the movie ends um, <clears throat> and so from there he's kind of working primarily in either noir or heavy drama films um, and then there's a turning point for him With House of Wax, because basically he sort of has to make a decision with accepting this film of where his career would end up going down, (laughs) which I don't think that that's um, an unreasonable uh, quandary to have, especially in 1950s cinema. Because typecasting, if people think typecasting is a problem today, which I don't, think they do but I think like I think the the equivalent we have today is like well once you do a Marvel movie you're kind of stuck in that Marvel mode or like that's all people will gravitate towards you for even if you have somebody like Chris Evans or Tom Holland breaking away they're still really associated with their roles on Marvel films for a horror act for a person to go into horror acting once you go in there you're almost pretty much stuck in it you don't get out of it um, which at the time A lot of people uh, feared that Um, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. They liked working in the horror realm, but I know like especially Karloff definitely didn't want to just be the boogeyman. I know he actively wanted to be something different. Um, When Vittem Price makes the choice to do House of Wax, he's basically saying, oh, I I, I'm in love with this shit. This sounds fucking fantastic. Like what's amazing is once he makes this decision, he doesn't just make the decision and then regret it. He makes the decision and says, give me more. (laughs) He finds a niche for himself. Um, And, this ends up being the cementing factor for the, the Vincent price that Tim Burton watches and goes, say, I want to
1: make movies
0: with people like him.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to hear, to hear him tell it, it sounds like he had a pretty good head on understanding that he was never going to be a leading actor, you know, a leading person actor. And, um, that he was sort of going to be relegated to these character acting roles. And he said he enjoyed it and had more fun. So I'm not sure that like jumping into the horror genre was, was that big of a leap once you sort of have a good understanding of like where you lie in this Hollywood landscape.
0: Right. And he, now he, with those character roles, if he takes the turn and doesn't do House of Wax, I don't think we'd be talking about him today. That's the, that's the trade-off is that like this is, this is like I don't know how many people are looking out for the movie Laura, apart from fans of Otto Preminger, Gene T- Tyranny. and then you see Vincent Price, and then you're like, oh, well, Vincent Price is in this movie, so this is going to be an extra bonus for me. Um, but he's not. Uh, Laura is not a film you directly associate with him, unless you're into Golden Age Hollywood or even just into filmmaking in general. When you think of Vincent Price, automatically you're going to think of horror. So that's like the thing that he ends up doing is creating a legacy for himself that not every actor in Hollywood at this time is able to do. Like, you know, I like, uh, I, I like, um, like people like Robert Taylor and Ava Gardner, but how many people know about Robert Taylor and Ava Gardner in a mass cultural perspective? The way they know Vincent Price, who was very, very innov- innovative and clever with how he marketed his image later in his life. Because it's one thing to star in The Pit and the Pendulum or The Last Man on Earth or uh, From Whisper to a Scream. It's another thing to go, yes, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Michael Jackson, I'll I'll do a little bit of a voice thing for your spooky song or whatever. Do I get a T-shirt? <laughs> like, uh, Or even to look at a young scraggly haired Tim Burton and go like, oh, you seem like a nice unkempt man. Sure, I'll I'll narrate your stop motion movie and oh what's this? You want me to play a man who invents a scissor hand person? I guess that sounds fine. I'm Vincent Price. I don't care. And um so he I like I appreciate out of Vincent Price more than anything is how much he actually just reveled in it. And he actually it's kind of open. He's just like, well, I mean, you know, this pays the bills. I'm really an art devotee, and this is what I like. This is what I do in my downtime. So if it pays for more art and the ability to spread art appreciation, then, hey, everybody wins. You get to see me torture a person on a rack, and then you get to look at a Picasso. <laughs> like, win-win for everybody. Um Now, the director they get for this movie is kind of like the last person you'd expect to put on a 3d movie because it's andre de toth um and he lost an eye at an early age and it didn't impede his ability to direct movies in general but when you think of a 3d movie the one thing you're thinking is well wouldn't you need two eyes to direct a movie like that but andre de toth was basically just like you know I'm I'm gonna give this a shot. I want to see how this
1: can look. Um, and well, and it was it was actually even more than that. Um, we're talking about a person who was absolutely obsessed with the technology of 3d mm-hmm. um, He had actually been researching it um, since the 40s, so yep. at least a decade before directing this. He had been researching it. And in fact, in 1946, which by my count is about six years before production on house of wax. He actually wrote an article for the Hollywood reporter talking about the merits of 3d process for Hollywood.
0: Yep. And it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that's mentioned within the commentary of this film where you have scholars discussing his interest in 3d. Um, and Andre Detoth, this is similar to Vincent price being only remembered for horror films. I feel like De Toth is primarily remembered only for house of wax because of the fact that it's a, it's a one-eyed man directing a 3d movie. Um, but he did much more than that. Um, he primarily worked himself in through noir and, um, action films, um, and Westerns. So like he does films like the stranger wore a gun crime wave Uh, The Bounty Hunter, um, Day of the Outlaw, and he ends up, he is also a second unit director on Lawrence of Arabia, which, (laughs) and he, I, I, it's kind of crazy how he does something like that, and then also second unit director on Superman, so like, he kept working. He's a workhorse director. He kept working well, all the way as long as he could.
1: Yeah. And I've, I've seen him, I've seen him described as a director's director. And I think that he's, he's a pragmatist and a, and a craftsperson um, to the, you know, to the epitome of that uh, terminology. And just as an example for house of wax, I believe he was given uh like a 1.2 or 1.3 million dollar budget for this film. Mm-hmm. And he, came in at just over $600,000 was the final uh budget. So we're talking about a, a a director who made this movie for half of the budget he was given. And that is just from what it sounds like the type of, you know, person that he was.
0: Yep. And in in a director who is a director's director having I mean, what's interesting is that one of the things he's remembered for within Oscar history is through Westerns. Cause he receives a nomination for best writing um, with, for the gunfighter with Gregory Peck. Um, and he was, he's a, he, he was, he's a guy who's kind of lived this long, courageous kind of life and whatnot. So he, he comes from um, Austria, Hungary comes over to the States he directs um, Well, before he comes to the States, he directs five films before world war two begins in Europe. And then he goes to England, spends years as an assistant to uh, Alexander Korda um, having worked in Hungarian films, his um, and then working with Korda. One of the things he ends up doing is being the second unit director on Korda's jungle book, uh, which was a, production that was marred with financial problems from its outset um and then when he lost his eyesight he ended up wearing an eye patch and there's an article um from 1994 the independent um that uh that this almost cost him his life so the practical patch detoth sport's over his left eye almost cost him his life. Scouting lo- for locations in Egypt shortly after Yom Kippur War of 1973, Detoth was kidnapped, pistol-whipped, and interrogated by a group of vengeful young men who had mistakenly uh, recognized him as Mo- Moshe Dayen. Um And he only escaped with his life after examination of his groin bore out Detoth's claim that far from being an Israeli commander, he was not even Jewish. <laughs> Um, he was actually married to Veronica Lake from 1944 until 1952. <laughs> so, like, this is a life. This is an absolute life. And he lived into 2002. So he's he's a guy who was able to spread the history of filmmaking as well in his later years. Um, but so they set up and set out to direct this this remake of house of wax or of mystery of the wax museum. Um, now Marshall, I want to, before we jump into the plot, what is your knowledge of, uh, the process, the camp, natural vision, natural vision, 3d process that's utilized.
1: I understand it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 okay. So I'm, I'm going to, I wrote this down in my notes from the, um, from the, commentary on house of wax. And the reason I want to bring it up is it's kind of interesting for the technical aspect of it. Um, Oh yeah.
1: It's, I mean, it's, it's beyond fascinating.
0: So um, Milton Gunsberg is the one who wants to innovate this. And his brother, Julian is an ophthalmologist who understood photography and both of them team up with a DP camera, uh, camera operator named friend Baker. um, And this is a guy who designed um, optical effects during the early years of cinema and he developed and patented a 3D attachment for 16 millimeter home cameras that had a fixed inner axial which the distance between the two cameras and a variable parallax was the only way to toe in the lenses so that they converged like out like our eyes do. So the technology itself is being utilized to equivocate how our eyes process a full like a full object and not as a flat object um and they developed the 35 millimeter rig that had two cameras pointed at mirrors reflecting objects at appropriate distance to simulate physiology of the human eye and this is stereoscopic filmmaking um and then um Polari- Polaroid, the company Polaroid, partnered with them to produce these polarized lenses. The ones that um, you pointed to are the ones that were actually used and not the ones that we would use with an anaglyph to read a comic book and go like, oh, Superman is coming at me in front of the screen. Um, and then uh, after Buona Devil, this natural vision process is acquired by Warner Brothers and they set upon figuring out what their first movie is going to be. They figure out it's going to be House of Wax. Um, And they... (laughs) I love this part of the behind the scenes. Warner announced two days after shooting tests for what was originally titled Wax Works. They just said, no, we're fucking doing it. (laughs) Like They didn't even like test it out fully. Jack Warner was just so gung-ho about making this project that he's like... And there's a desperation at this point because... As has been discussed on this show, with television coming in, Warner Brothers doesn't jump immediately into being able to capitalize on television. Um, Secret History of Hollywood points to the fact that they actually dragged their feet on television. And it was Jack Warner Jr. who ended up basically telling his father, look, we can make actual money instead of, you know, not making money. And Jack Warner was finally like, fine, just do it, whatever. I don't fucking care. I want to like this isn't the actual thing that we're. Make, here here to do, we're here to make movies and cinema and art. And Jack Warner Jr. is like, yeah, but the future, right over Pop, Pop, look at me. <laughs> the future right over there. This is money to be made. Hundreds of thousands of dollars from Ford and other companies to just put up product for television. Um, so, in an effort to recapture their cinema-going audience, every studio is throwing things at the wall, and 3D comes at this opportune moment to temporarily swipe television out um because as we discussed with dial in for murder the 3d fad as it was as it was referred to then um doesn't stick around that long it's really like um you'll have to correct me on this i think it's like what are like a two year really like a two-year period
1: tops not even yeah not even that like, cause um, cause also murder- as, as far as Jack Warner goes, the, you know, I think there was some ego involved in it as well, because, you know, it's been described that he sort of, you know, saw himself as the first studio head to use sound. And so he also wanted to lead the charge into 3d and in utilizing this technology. So that, that to me speaks to that sort of immediate turnaround after the test of saying, yep, we're doing it.
0: Yeah, no, he, so like, yes. And, and as has been stated in the past, Warner Brothers is the studio that innovates sound with the jazz singer. And that was much more an innovation of Sam Warner, the brother who died just before the jazz singer's premiere. Um, and Jack Warner, I think, was more in tune with that end of innovation than necessarily the innovation of television. Because I think he looks at television as a competition rather than the ally it can be um, if if you work with it properly. Um, But he looks at 3D as just like, well, this is just what we did with sound. Um, Sam would have wanted to do this. Let's go ahead and try this. And also, again, as we said at this point, there's a desperation involved in it combined with that ego that brings up brings forth something like House of Wax, Um, which. We should jump into the plot of this film right now, because along the plot, we'll also talk about what works in 3D and what is clearly the gimmick. Uh, Clearly there's some things to discuss in regards to how 3D is used in here, both as a positive and a negative. Now for full disclosure, the only one of us who has been able to see House of Wax in 3D would be Marshall. Um, I have the 2D print, but I have the 3D disc Um, but it provides both versions. So I've only seen this movie ever. So in 2d Um, Marshall, was this the first time you'd seen this movie um, preparing for this episode or had you seen it before? No, this was the first time. Okay. So you're a, you're, you're, you're a newbie into this. The first time I saw this movie was on a portable DVD player on the 2d version that Warner brothers first put out in uh, on DVD. So I've gradually seen this on bigger screens as I've gotten older. (laughs) (laughs) it's just been slowly eventually when i get back to your place i'm gonna be able to see this in 3d at last um yes but i can't wait to show it for you it's gonna rock but until then you will have to be our 3d conduit you'll have to be the glasses for this episode um and uh i think that From my end with the 2D, what I'm going to really dig into from where I can is the plot of this movie, because it's only 88 minutes. But there's a lot that you can you could do a lot in 88 minutes, as we talked about with um, uh, shorter films that we've already discussed. And you could certainly do a lot with 65 minutes with the black cat. (laughs) So uh, we'll go ahead and jump into this plot right now. But first, uh, some credits directed by Andre de produced by Brian Foy, screenplay by Crane Wilbur, based on The Waxworks by Charles S. S. Belden, starring Vincent Price, Frank Lovejoy, Phyllis Kirk, Carolyn Jones, Paul Persini, Roy Roberts, Paul Cavanaugh, Dabs Dabs Greer, Angela Clark, Nedrick Young, and Charles Brunson. But you would only know me here as Charles Bukinski. (laughs) This is an early Charles Bronson movie, ladies and gentlemen. If you didn't think we weren't going to talk about Charles Bronson on the Ballyhoo, you picked the wrong show, bub. <laughs> we'll get into him, though, because it's interesting how important Charles Bronson is to keeping the legacy of House of Wax alive, technically. <laughs> um, But let's... <laughs> <laughs> the the guy who the guy who ran into the ground with canon films is responsible for one of the best 3d films ever made having a legacy to this day oh yeah. this
1: movies are life is weird movies movies are fucking weird dude <laughs> they really are they oh really are. My god yeah, i remember after watching the movie being like man who played igor he looked so familiar and looking it up and then it was like Oh, it's Charlie Bronson. Yeah. That's it. Yes. I mean,
0: lots of things you don't remember. <laughs> like, did you remember I was in the Dirty Dozen? No. All you remember me as the guy who goes, wrong move, pal, and then goes blammo with my gun. <laughs> I was an architect, but then life decided to throw me a fucked up curveball. <laughs>
1: yeah. And here they wisely decided to keep him as a mute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true they vincent price said if i talked at all he'd slap me with his art loving hands <laughs> um but let's let's go ahead and jump into the plot we open up the titles come at you house of wax now even in 2d i can clearly see that these texts are set up to kind of pop out at you a little bit now like i'm assuming marshall that they kind of do have a little bit of a nice popped out, slightly popped out feel to it.
1: Oh, it's gorgeous. It is, yeah, you're <laughs> underselling it. It is beautiful against this uh, rainy night street that's clearly a back lot, but still just gorgeous, lamplit, and this orange, dripping wax, house of wax with quotes around it. It's it's phenomenal.
0: I like I how it's it. I like how it has quotes going like it's the house of wax. <laughs> I don't know why there's quotes. Well, you know what? I shouldn't ask that because I put quotes around the titles of the episodes that I put out. So, <laughs> never mind. Go. Forget it. Scratch it. Not worth the talking about. Um, but yeah, we also get this score by David Butolf, who um, Butolf, who is I don't I don't know much about him apart from working on um, uh, on the show Mag Maverick um, with James Garner. Cause he did the theme for it. Um, and he did a lot of television, but I didn't realize that house of wax was scored by anybody that wasn't in the normal Warner brother stock. I would have just assumed Max Steiner would have done the score. So imagine my shock, but it has a nice creepy feel like gets you in the mood, sets you up for early 1900s, New York, um, you know we're far past the civil war and the existence of bill the butcher and his terrible gang in the five points um well before
1: but, before we can get too far past the credits we have to talk about the cinematography team
0: oh yes um i've got three names here
1: <laughs> yeah so starting on the film was a gentleman named bert glennon who uh, actually fell ill and then had to be replaced mm-hmm. by j uh, Peveril Marley,
0: I believe. Yep, Jay Peveril. That. Yep, Jay Peveril Marley. Mar- J. John Peveril Marley, or Jay Peveril Marley. Um, one of his earlier efforts is The House of Rothschild with, um, Boris Karloff. Um, and then he does films like Of Human Bondage, um, with, uh, Paul Henry and, um, uh, He's, but he's only one of three here. So, like, if you look at his full listing, he's not even like fully credited for House of Wax on like other listings. But you, you know, what my favorite film of his that he shot is, though, right? What's that? The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1939 Uh with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. Um, it's a beautiful looking movie. Um, Peveril, I would have to assume if there's any. foggy mood and atmosphere in this film. I would credit it to Marley here because there is moments of that in house of wax. Um, they're not the predominant form of atmospheric terror, but there's things there, especially during the
1: chase scenes that we'll talk about later. Um, yeah, but then, well, I don't, I don't have specific details on this, but if I were to take a gander at how the sort of work broke down between these three names, and just for those waiting with bated breath, the third name is uh, none other than Robert Burks from Hitchcock fame, mm-hmm. uh, shooting Vertigo to catch a thief re- rear window, um, that such. And I am seeing in Robert Burks's sort of history is that he actually became an expert in forced perspective techniques. So, and because he's uncredited in the film, I believe that they probably, the movie started with the, lone cinematographer as Burt Glennon. And then, as I said, he fell ill and was replaced um, by Marley, John Marley. And I would imagine that Robert Burks was probably there as some sort of a supervisory or um, like a consulting role on the force perspective in knowing, especially working with like foreground elements and that sort of stuff would just be my guess based on their backgrounds and history.
0: Right. Um, and that would make the most sense given um given Burke's ability as a cameraman but uh, you'll recall too this isn't the first 3D film that Burks works on though or, or the, it wouldn't be the last because we talked about dial in for murder so do you think yes. do you think Marshall that Robert Burks was doing this and then just going like yeah no no you don't need to credit me everything's going to be okay hitch 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 get over here What, what, what is it Burke? what what I know how we can make a
1: 3D movie. <laughs> I mean, just yeah, stealing techniques. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put it past it at all. A oh, um,
0: scheme worked, Robert. You went in there to help them out, quote unquote, and you ended up coming out with all the knowledge we need to make the best 3D movie. Dial M for Murder. <laughs> right. Yeah, Never... and
1: actually, I mean, from that standpoint, it actually could be some semblance of that where Hitchcock also could have been intrigued by this 3d um you know the 3d process Mm -hmm. and because he had worked with uh Robert before Robert Burks before yeah um that he really kind of leaned heavily on him to like learn the lay of the land
0: yeah it would make it would make the most sense um because he um Hitch was a person who like trended towards innovations in technology. Now, when we talked about it in dial in for murder, it's unclear exactly how much he loved the technology because it seems like because it, because it didn't end up meeting the expectations financially, it almost seems like he just kind of never gave it a second thought to be like, well, say I could keep doing this. Um, So we have three different cinematographers here credited all contributing different elements of the film. Now we don't have specifics on what each person worked on, but I'm working off of the assumption that Marley does some of the more atmospheric stuff, because if you look at something like how to the Baskervilles, there's a clear example that he has experience with things moving in the foreground and background to oppose each other, to kind of create a mood, like especially with the fogs of Dartmoor, you know the, the, the place feels alive, and I think with House of Wax, it's important that the film feels alive um, because you are dealing with that 3D tech and you're dealing with early 1900s in New York on a beautiful back lot that Warner Brothers has set up um, that you're going to want to get the most out of that that you can um, before you have to go inside, of, uh, inside into Professor Jared's Wax Museum itself. Um, but before we go into that other house of wax, we have to go to his first house of wax. We're going to get Jared's origin story here as it's, uh, known in the, uh, in the parlance of horror films. Um, and he's got a wax museum in early 1900s and it specializes in historical figures, Marshall. Um, and let's get it right off the bat. First of all, it's he's a professor because it's a title that was given to him. He doesn't really take it seriously. <laughs> like, right? It's, it's kind of just like a thing for him. He's just like, yes, yes. They call me the professor. They can call me whatever. I really don't fucking care. I'm just here to show you off all my wonderful historical models. Look, look, look. Here's Joan of Arc. Here's Cleopatra. All, all my friends are here. And I, I, I don't know what this movie's trying to say about art versus commerce that actually sticks but it they more or less use it as a horror film tool to like explain his madness <laughs> <laughs> um i i'm i'm puzzled by like i love this movie to death but i was puzzled when really dissecting the dialogue like, is this trying to say something about art versus commerce or is it literally just using it as a prop?
1: <laughs> well, if yeah, I, I am not sure I, uh, I'll hold I'll hold one thought for a second, but I think that if it is trying to say anything, uh, then it is making fun of its own audience because, um, <laughs> essentially the commentary on art versus commerce is that, um, things that are passion driven and historically driven and beauty driven don't draw an audience and lose money. But the horrific and the macabre do draw money. And this is a horror film. So everyone sitting in the audience are actually one of the second uh, House of Wax's audience members, as opposed to someone who would have gone to see The first House of Wax.
0: You can imagine, like this guy getting off of a factory job, going like, "Oh boy, I'm going to see the House of Wax." And he goes in, and he hears a comment like that, and he goes like, "Well, say, what the fuck is this all about? (laughs) Why are you making fun of me?" Like, Jared is kind of a snob. If and you know what, by by kind of, I mean he's a total fucking snob. Um, (laughs) He's very. he doesn't like necessarily shove it in your face, but he's very um, passive with his interpretation of what true beauty is. Um, And he clearly finds um, a connection spiritually and not just artistically, but spiritually with the figures that he creates. Um, And right now he's working on another one of his latest works. When in walks in his business partner, Matthew Burks or Matthew Burke, um, And right off the bat, Matthew played by Roy Roberts. He's, um, he's tired of losing money on it. Now, Marshall, we've had talks before about how film is a business. Um, and it's a larger discussion, but if we could boil it down, is Matthew wrong for wanting these things from Jared? (laughs) Um,
1: yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think that if if Matthew Burke were a smart business person, he would have been aware of what he was buying into in the first place. Um, that's the thing. Like, and I th- I don't
0: want to yeah. I don't want to like throw into the argument of like, well, art for art's sake and art is the only true way because that's not a realistic answer. But let's be honest, Matthew should have looked at Professor Henry Jared's work. And said, like, well, this isn't smart because none of this is violent except for John Wilkes Booth, which I want to talk about that that figurine because it keeps coming back. Um, But right. Yeah. Well, we've
1: got Joan of Arc in there.
0: We've got Joan of Arc. We've got Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette's going to be Marie Antoinette and Joan of Arc play big roles in this movie. Um, And actually, we we get an instance with these figurines of one of my favorite tropes in this movie is as Vincent price is going through different scenes of his wax museum. He makes, um, many, many of what would become kind of like trademark horror humorisms for him. (laughs) Um, but before we get to that, we have Henry Jared basically telling Matthew, like now I've got a, a tour set up with Sidney Wallace. He's a, a a huge art critic and he would be able to help buy you out of your investment and then just work with me directly. And so Sidney Wallace shows up and Matthew just hides in the office and Jared takes them on a tour of his museum. And I had some notes written down about the different things he says about, um, uh, the different, uh, exhibits. First of all, he doesn't really make a joke with this, but with Cleopatra and Anthony, he starts breaking down the meticulous detail of like the hair where you're putting in one hair at a time. And this is in the early 1900s in New York. It means he's getting these things off of donated bodies, like donated dead bodies, because it's real hair. Um, so there is already a sense of macabre for it, but he doesn't see it that way. He sees it like it's it's a means to an end. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, and then he... uh. They go over to John Wilkes Booth and these guys are really really obsessed with how good John Wilkes Booth looks accuracy wise. <laughs> <laughs> and he he says to them it's his only concession to Matthew's desire for the macabre. <laughs> um and he he starts making jokes about how John Wilkes Booth is a stubborn is stubborn uh, as a model because he's an actor <laughs> and he starts making actor jokes. <laughs> and I, it was just, it was just so strange. And uh, I, I, I didn't know how to process it, but then they move on to the Joan of Arc um, statue. And then he makes an important point, which is there are no known portraits of Joan available. And so um, uh, they have to work off of um. Impressions of the time and just something that comes out of inspiration, which is something similar to how he has to do Marie Antoinette. Um, But Marshall, I want to point this out for posterity's sake. We have Mm -hmm. we must have pictures of Joan of Arc because you remember when she was leading aerobic exercises at the San Dimas Mall in 1989,
1: right? Oh, how, how could I forget? Yeah, I mean,
0: she was there. Genghis Khan was hanging out in the food court. Beef oven was hanging out at the music store and so crates and Billy, the kid were hitting on women in the food court. I, I, I challenge Henry Jared because he clearly didn't look hard enough for these photos.
1: He did. not Yeah. And it, 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 may be standard definition black and white security footage from the mall, but it it's got to exist out there. Look, if he's,
0: if he's this committed to his art, he should have built, he should have gone to George Carlin's phone booth time machine Gone to the eighties, snapped a picture of Joan of Arc, and then came back. But clearly, he's just not a dedicated artist. He's not as see see these artsy fartsy guys, Marshall. They don't always know what they're fucking talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sandiva's rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm rewatching that movie tonight. Now, um, um, but now he so now he goes. Uh, he goes through the entire tour and Sydney Wallace is clearly impressed. He's just like, well, this is very good. And you know, Jared is going like, well, my business partner, he wants out of this, but what would you want to invest in my project? And, uh, Sydney goes like, well, I'd have to think about it. I'm on my way to Egypt right now and I'll be gone for many months. <laughs> and my mind immediately went to, Ooh, Sydney Wallace is in a mummy movie. Um, but, um, yeah, so he's going to leave, but when he comes back, Jared and him will figure out figure out how to, you know, take this off of Matthew's hands. And Jared looks pretty satisfied as they all leave and Matthew's just like uh he's kind of just lurking out of the office. Um and uh he he makes a comment about a man has to be a little nuts to be that good a showman. And then like that's fairly accurate. <laughs> um because he asks the question to Jared do you really find them to be alive um uh and Jared does consider his subjects um uh live figures like they are they are alive to him um he talks to them and hears their answers back yeah yes exactly which i don't want to know what jared is talking about with john wilkes booth because that just sounds like it just some some things marshall you just don't want to (laughs) hear um amen yeah it's it's better as to quote uh joey pants in the matrix ignorance is bliss um (laughs) and uh but he's he's afraid that he'll go cold on the deal. The guy that Sidney Wallace will go cold on this deal. And Matthew doesn't have time for this. So he's going to just set the place on fire. Um, and we get this fight scene that one of the reasons why I'm upset that I haven't watched this movie in 3d yet is I have to imagine that scene looks pretty fucking wonderful in 3d. Um, because this is a fight scene that starts with him setting things on, setting the different wax figures on fire Jared trying to stop him and basically succeeding a couple times, but then Jared just magically gets back up pretty quickly and lights more matches. Like the ratio of Jared punching him and Matthew lighting another match is unrealistic, but I love his dedication to like, no, I got to see it fucking burn. <laughs> like there's that one punch where he punches him and clearly he's gotten the upper hand on him, but. In the other, uh, in the other shot that it's cut to, Matthew is already lighting another match, ready to go. Um, so, how does this look in three D? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot in the foreground and background to kind of create an entire like stage scene of chaos, running out about us. Um, and I don't know how fire registers in three D at that time.
1: It's, it's pretty phenomenal. I think that, you know, it's interesting to kind of know the, if you know the production schedule on this film, then this fire was actually one of the last things that they shot. And it was one of the ways they were able to save so much money is they, they reused all the wax figures that are in, um, the second house of wax in the film, um, in this first one. And then those are the ones that they burned. So they didn't have to create doubles of everything. Um, and, and this scene plays like a climax of a film in, in that way, in terms of the production schedule, it was like the climax of the production. Um, and that is how this scene plays And and in that, because it's happening before we have spent a lot of time with our characters, you know, I mean, I think this is probably within the first 10 minutes, easy of the film, it goes on about a third too long. Um, But from an audience's standpoint, especially being, you know, the first large studio 3D film, the staging and the fire and the fights and having chairs and water thrown in your face and all this sort of stuff are, I mean, it's spectacular. It's it's wonderfully lensed and staged, Um, but... My God, it's like it's that, it's getting awfully close to being like oh well, well, well. That's what I was I know gonna John say. Except I don't. I, we scene, know from record
0: um, that John Carpenter was just like well, I hired a wrestler, so I figured we needed a wrestling scene in this movie or an extended fight scene for those wrestling fans. So that's why I stuck that in there. But there's precedent for him having this elongated a fight scene because it does go on. For an 88-minute movie, this is the one scene that technically drags the longest. Um, But in a way that for an audience watching it in 1953 and certainly an audience today uh, works, especially if you have that 3D tech, I'll tell you that even in the 2D, it's still kind of amazing watching the different things going on in the foreground and background and I don't want to say imagining what the 3D looks like, but kind of putting yourself in the position to be excited by the imagery um and you and you know like no you I was going to say like for all that Henry Jared does throughout this movie being a well, tortured and, artist to the point sorry, of literally ahead. being burned alive which we'll find out here in a second there's that moment where he's kind of like looking through and trying to save his friends and it's that one moment of like like uh sympathy or like like a feeling you have for Jared like oh my god this cruel businessman is destroying his art. Like, you know, like Vincent is really good at giving you the feeling that he cares about these subjects. And I think a lot of what he's able to put in this role actually extends from his appreciation in the art, for the art world, where he's able to, he's now having to put himself in the shoes of one of the people who would paint a masterpiece that he would want to collect. Um, so I kind of find that interesting. But anyway, uh,
1: what were you going to say? right yeah i i was just gonna say that just from a filmmaking criticism standpoint in watching it the first time i do have to say that the thing that makes the fight scene most unbearable in terms of its length oh, is yeah. <laughs> actually how long they hold off on showing joan of arc burning like I just, from the moment that we see Joan of Arc as a figure, and then you you're hearing, um, oh, though it's a uh, Matthew Bur- Matthew was uh, Sydney yeah. Wallace talking about burning the place to the ground to collect the insurance money. My head just, oh, I'm sorry, yes, Matthew Burke, um, wanting to burn the place to the ground for the insurance money. My my head goes straight to Joan of Arc, like oh, how brilliant we're gonna get to see. Joan of Arc burn as a wax figure as opposed to the historical figure that's wonderful. And then there's all of this lighting of matches and burning and all this kind of stuff and it holds off and holds off and holds off and when you finally get to see Joan of Arc burning, (laughs) it's just a flat shot and it's just sort of like, oh yeah I guess, yeah, and then also Joan of Arc is also burning. It's just this afterthought and I was like, I thought we were going to do something with that because how wonderful you know, and um, so just the the anticipation of that was sort of like okay yeah another punch another punch another. Do you think splash Robert Burke was anything, working under match, secret like, orders from Joan, Hitchcock to, to Joan, make that the least interesting shot? Like, oh yeah, because by the way, they realized it
0: would be the best shot. <laughs> I want you to fuck that. I look, this is the particular shot I want you to mess up because then it will, <laughs> the, the, people will be disappointed and then they'll be like, "There's no hope for uh, 3D," yeah. but then here comes Dial for Murder, <laughs> and suddenly you get to see a giant hand dialing a number (laughs) um actually here's a question i have for you on the 3d end how does it look when marie antoinette burns because they pop on that pretty hard because marie antoinette is kind of his he considers her his masterpiece um like his his true love if you will um and
2: mm -hmm. Mm
1: mm-hmm all of the burnings are phenomenal um I, yeah Mary Antoinette is 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 great there's another <clears throat> excuse me another figure I forget who it is is just absolutely haunting and phenomenal and you get to see all the paint on the wax melt off before the Mac the wax loses its its shape and it's it's beautiful beautiful shot which,
0: which if we're talking about we're talking about a horror movie here and we're obviously talking about an era in horror where you can't have gore especially explicit gore like certainly or pretty much any type of gore um i would argue that to toth with this wax wax melting imagery which then you could also say Curtiz does the same thing with mystery at the wax museum but the two wax films are kind of the earliest instances of gore on screen and i i know that's kind of a stretch but hear me out you are looking at a body melting even though you know it's wax, it still has a horrific look about it. Like to see everything melting off of the face and then what was clearly a glass eye is now very much a glass eye. Like it's it the the image is off putting. Um it's very not much so. it's not
1: scary. It's just off putting um and yeah, that's I mean, you're seeing human likenesses uh lose their shape and color mm-hmm. by fire. And it yeah it is I yeah. Perfectly yeah. said, off- off-putting.
0: Yeah, and then Screaming Mad George saw that and said, well, what if I did that but with social, uh, socially upper-class alien people that have orgies? And that's how society was made, Marshall. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. If anybody who's listening hasn't watched society, um, I'm not recommending it to you, but I'm not not recommending it to you. <laughs>
1: Is... I am I recommend a double bill of <laughs> Wall Street and society you have to watch Wall Street first and then you watch society <laughs>
0: I haven't thought about that double feature Marshall that sounds like an interesting idea <laughs> is, that, is your illusion that Michael Douglas's face is the first to melt <laughs> It could be yeah. <laughs> society in wall street that needs to be an alamo thing as soon as the alamo has like a bigger audience coming back to it like currently the alamo one of the alamos here in denver is open well once everything is a little bit more uh calm and relaxed marshall i vote we try to uh book a wall street society double bill <laughs> i love it that god that the amount of people punching us on the way out <laughs> a true celebration of the 80s. Oh yeah. yeah, not just to that but to art itself. <laughs> um anyway, yeah, go ahead and watch society guys. I don't care if you have nightmares anyway. <laughs> um and uh but anyway, so yeah, the place is burning. Um Matthew Further seals the burning of this place by blowing out the gas lamp candles, um leaving the gas going because this is a um um an oil lamp, essentially that like the, where the gas is coming out. Um, that's what that was for. I was going to
1: ask you. So all of the shots of these blown out gas lamps, I'm like, what is
0: going on? Yeah. So here's how, you know, what is going on with that. Marshall is like, so yeah, it is the gas lamps. And the reason why the place then just goes up kerflooey is because after you hear him blow it out, you hear a pfft. And that's the gas coming out of that pipe. So that's how well, everything it blows up.
1: I think that I, if you watch the film, I hope that you forgive my confusion because there is no way that place wasn't going up with or without gas being on hand. <laughs> um <laughs> And actually that's an interesting sort of production note is they actually almost burned the stage down. They burned a hole in the roof Mm -hmm. uh, because the fire got out of control, but they were shooting with multiple cameras. I think they had three 3D rigs Mm -hmm. shooting that sequence and they just kept rolling through it because (laughs) there was no sort of like stopping and resetting the figures or anything like that. But that was actually like a, a pretty... An extremely dangerous sequence
0: yeah and given how much warner jack warner was invested in making this the big um uh the big 3d success that he wanted it to be he might have been willing to let people die for that vision (laughs) like that is that is unconscionably irresponsible and yet you think about that and you're like, well, Jesus, like that's kind of the power of the danger that movie making was at that point. It's not too dissimilar from the fact that they shot live ammunition at brick walls for the public enemy and nearly clipped James Cagney in the chest. So, um, you know, like that, that, that makes several sense of the word, but the place burns down. We get an old timey fire engine coming we've cut away um, and Matthew has basically gotten away with his scheme uh, to to collect the money. We are left uncertain to the fate of professor Henry Jared. um, But we do know that Matthew is now courting uh, a young woman named Kathy uh, played by Carolyn Jones. Carolyn Jones, pretty interesting career because she, she got an Oscar nomination for the bachelor party in 1957. And then in 1964, she originates the role of Morticia Adams on the Adams family. So she's not Mm -hmm. a, she would end up not being a stranger to horror. Um, Unfortunately, she did die very young at the age of 53 in 1983. Um, But she ended up like running through a lot of different, um, uh, films of the gamut like she was in one of Frank Capra's latter movies a hole in the head Um, and she's in how the West was Won*. Um, she's got quite a legacy about her Um, but here in uh, in House of Wax she's playing Kathy who I am convinced that Kathy is somehow related to Lena Lamont (laughs) from singing in the rain (laughs)
1: Because yes, this, very this, very well could be. Yeah, this, Carolyn Jones is utterly unrecognizable as Morticia Adams in this film.
0: No, yeah, no, yeah, you you would not associate Morticia Adams with this character. She is bubbly, she is light, and she wants to get married. And Matthew does not see that as part of their arrangement. <laughs> like he is, he's very much like, oh, yeah, I guess we could do that that thing. Yeah, w- whatever. But he explains in the process of courting Kathy that he had trouble with the insurance companies because um normally when people want to see uh, want proof of um, uh, proof of the fire for insurance money they want to see the dead body of their partner or like proof of the fire and Matthew sees this as the biggest inconvenience imaginable <laughs> like I don't think Matthew fully thought out his plan of arson <laughs> I think oh, all but he it knew. worked. No, it did. No, it did. It did. He goes back to his apartment and lurking in the apartment is a mysterious masked figure. Uh or not masked figure, a mysteriously burned figure. Uh wearing a top hat, looking like Freddy Krueger. Um if he Uh, if he basically just decided it's not worth trying to look cool, I've got to just wear black and go with the basic look imaginable. Um, And he kills Matthew. This figure kills Matthew and then stages it to look like he hung himself in the elevator shaft. Um, And this is a scene that As far as horror films are concerned, Marshall, we watch plenty of them between the both of us. Um, There was kind of like a reminder of the movie Marnie when I watched this, where when he's staging the hanging, there's a maid who's basically close to eyeshot of him, and he's basically doing his best to make sure he stages this in time for her to notice it without noticing him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was just like, dude, like, I don't know if this theatricality is worth all the effort you're putting into it and the risk. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great effect though, because when you see a body like that, just flump. Um, and it, it's a hanging, like it's a nice, beautifully macabre image. um, But I don't know if it's worth the effort that he's putting into this <laughs> <laughs> the staging of it like he's just it's like um you know what it is he's preparing for it the way people prepare for a haunted house <laughs> like for a Halloween, like a like we have all those ones out in denver like the 13 floors of terror or whatever like mm-hmm. he's he's just thinking to himself like oh i know i know how to not only get back at my evil partner but i also know how to scare the shit out of some goth kids like that's that's his thinking here because he creates this beautifully staged hanging to the
1: point where everybody assumes he hung himself uh stages it as yeah, I think suicide. that I mean the I think that all the theatricality goes into it is that he wants to stage it in such a way that it seriously reduces the chances that it was a murder by hanging so I, he needs someone to find the body as it is hitting the end of the rope as opposed to just coming upon it when someone could have been pushed down an elevator shaft with a rope around their neck.
0: Right No, I, I mean, and I'm not denying his logic behind it because obviously clearly he's going to get away with it now. If people think that it's suicide. Um, but as actually, as they later find out in the report, like they're still like after his death, they're still trying to decide if it was murder or suicide. So not everybody's absolutely certain
1: um, of what's gone down. Um, but well, yeah, he's just he's just come into the possession of twenty thousand dollars of insurance money. So, <laughs> t- turning up dead by suicide doesn't exactly coincide with the fortune that he just uh, came into.
0: Yeah, but, but it doesn't matter because it looks so. Elegant and brilliant—that you wouldn't expect to to see a suicide like that. But who would do it in such grand th- theatrics unless they were clearly insane? And that's how I get away with it because there's a bunch of deniability all over the place, Marshall. <laughs> like, it's a flawed plan, but logic—like from basic logic—it works. Um, and it doesn't matter much because then we're whisked away to another uh apartment, uh a boarding apartment, um, where Kathy. Uh, is getting ready for a night out with another beau. Um, And she is assisted by her friend, Sue Allen. Um, And we get some wonderful 50s girl banter back and forth here. That uh, it's um, it's it's reminded me how much horror is able to keep up with the times it lives in when it comes to having female interactions or male and female interactions where, The dialogue here certainly fits the fifties. My favorite line to point out to this is if a girl don't watch a figure, then the men won't.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This film definitely does not pass the Bechtel test. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just put it there.
0: That's just, and then she says the, she's talking to Sue who Sue is a little bit more reserved, um, much more shy. Um, very much hitting the horror trope of the final girl, if you will—the one who's going to be able to survive. She's our heroine. She's a little more relatable. She's less of a walking stereotype. <laughs> um, she's down on her luck. She's broke. Yeah, she is. She's she's two steps away from getting kicked out of the um, Flanagan <laughs> of a boarding house, and uh, Kathy is just a walking cliche of you're the first to die in a horror movie. Um, but we don't see it on screen. Um, because she goes, she goes out, Sue goes out to look for a job, doesn't get the job, comes back to the boarding house. Miss Flanagan, um, much like a property owner during COVID times comes up and goes, have you got the rent? Have you got the rent? Have you got the rent? (laughs) And, (laughs) um, and Sue goes like, no, 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 but you need it now. You need it now. And she, you know, alludes to the fact that Kathy said she would loan her money. And she goes like, well, you need to get it right now. You know, like, can it wait till tomorrow? No, no, no. You're not another night under this house until you get me that rent. Um, So, yeah, like kind of hard today to really sympathize with a with a (laughs) (laughs) landowner right right now. But uh, uh, she's very insistent. Sue goes up, turns on her gas lamp, goes into Kathy's room. sees that Kathy is dead (laughs) uh and uh the cloaked figure uh chases after her she's she's terrified they she he starts chasing her through the streets and these shots in the streets I believe according to the commentary were among the first things shot um so let's talk about this chase scene from the perspective of 3D Marshall um I like how how the sets that Warner Brothers, you know, put into practice for all those years are utilized here. Um it feels mm-hmm. like a living breathing New York. This is this is clearly a uh an aged up version of their Little New York Street um where they would have a lot of their modern era gangster movies of the 30s and 40s happening. Um or they're using the more rustic cobblestone sets that they had on those lots to really kind of paint this portrait of a like a foggier-than-usual New York to create that menace and terror. And I kind of like how they're playing with the atmosphere. And this is just from a 2D perspective. And I don't want to keep asking this for every question, but this in particular is like, how does this kind of look? Because when we talked about Dial-In for Murder, we're very much location-locked um, in those rooms with um, Grace Kelly and um, Ray Milland. So we're not really leaving the house here. We're leaving a house and we're going out into the streets.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, the the depth in the streets um, definitely plays very well uh, with the 3D. But uh, one thing that we actually didn't touch on yet um, is that uh, House of Wax for all of its, uh, you know, 3D fanfare is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records for a completely different technological um novelty. And that is it is the first film released in Warner Phonic Stereo Sound, yes. which is a four channel sound process. And the sequence in the streets, I would say, is actually a bigger would have been a bigger testament to the sound design of the film, um, as opposed to strictly the the three D nature of it.
0: Yes um
1: and the
0: stereophonic sound was an additional gimmick utilized by Warner Brothers uh in order to sell the idea of you need to leave your house and leave your television and experience um a, a have a truly immersive experience at the at the movies um now stereophonic sound um but it's basically yeah. stereo
1: well no it's 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 bigger than stereo it's actually sort of um a an early version of surround sound surround sound yeah it's a yeah sorry yeah it's a four channel process so what you have is you have your typical left right you also have a center channel um, and the sound design in this was actually very heavily mixed for the stereo sound. So if someone was on the left side of the screen, then their dialogue was mixed to be coming predominantly from the left channel. Yeah. Um, and then there's also this fourth channel, which is a special effects track only channel that was mixed only to come from the reverse of the theater. And so that would have been... Things like if, if a character runs off screen and you can still hear their footsteps, all of a sudden the mix would pan those footsteps to the rear of the theater. Also, all of the screams in the film were mixed into the rear of the theater so that it was completely immersive, mm-hmm. all of the screaming that was going on. So it it actually was um, a lot more advanced and involved than just uh, a stereo uh, mix,
0: which is another, which which to me points to another instance of Warner Warner Brothers not biting off more than they can chew, um, because they don't want to fully go fully into like the the full reception of the film just yet. But when they initially put in their sound with Vitaphone, one of the issues that they had as a studio was. Well, we're basically making a gimmick that not everybody's going to have access to. And so the reason why something like The Jazz Singer ends up being so important is because it's so, it's so good you can't ignore it. You have to start hooking up all the theaters you can for this experience because audiences want to see it. In the 50s, you know, one of the big selling points for leaving the house would end up being things like uh, CinemaScope. Um, or VistaVision, where the screen is larger and the experience is more immersive around, and sound would play a part in that, but this would have meant having to rewire the theaters. So I'd have to imagine that this ended up being more costly than Warner, Warner Brothers would have wanted it to be. Um, but they ended up thinking of it in the long run as like, well, this is something for the future, which it surrounds sound. We use this today. Um, if we're looking for an immersive theatrical sound experience, I guess it's at Dolby Atmos. When you see a Dolby Atmos logo in a theater, uh, for a screening of a movie, that's what you're going in for. Like, right. um, Which is a 13 track sound uh, escape, which by the way, is the only way to watch Ford v Ferrari. That's the only way to watch it. And no other way, uh, exists. Um, uh, not, not because it doesn't exist because that's just the way you need to fucking watch it. Um, but the reason, so the reason that I bring up wiring for theaters, um, when it comes to wiring a theater nowadays for Atmos, not every theater is equipped with Dolby Atmos. They're usually reserving it for their larger, um, specialty screens. So like your RPXs or your IMAX, um, this the Warner stereophonic sound isn't even the true first instance of it. This, we actually need to acknowledge Disney here for a second, because this was a failed experiment. But when Walt Disney was making Fantasia, th- that particular system ends up not working for Disney. Warner brothers ends up doing it. It turns out like not every theater was able to be rigged for it. So they ended up referring back to the mono track. So, I'd have to imagine that the releases that have come out with uh, the Blu-ray and whatnot, I haven't, like, checked the track on it, but I'm assuming we're hearing the best possible version, which would be the Warner Surround
1: um, sound version of it. Sit down, Zach. No. (laughs) No. It doesn't exist anymore.
0: No! That's right. That's right. While the original stereo tracks are considered lost, it is believed that the clamshell case Warner DVD uses the original 4.0 surround mix as opposed to the snapper case uh DVD. I, that
1: that is a yeah, I saw that little tidbit on IMDb and I don't understand how that could possibly be the case because if it was around for the DVD, yeah. I don't understand why it wouldn't be preserved in a digital form. Um uh it is very much my understanding that the actual 4 channel um track of House of Wax is gone and gone forever.
0: Yeah, this Um, this belief that people have in it is impossible because I heard this on my headphones. My Bluetooth headphones are not like you know necessarily as great as the ones I use for podcast editing, but they are uh, good enough to pick up on what's a stereo and what's a mono. Um, So, like when I we Psycho in four K. I clearly um I, I texted you while watching it going like it just kind of sucks that I don't have the track, the mono track that they keep talking about. And you're just like, well, that's because they screwed up on the release print. And I'm like, what?
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. And um, like and But it- I will say this about the House of Wax track, which is nice, is that the thing that was preserved, although all separated four channels were not preserved, one thing that has been preserved is the rear channel special effects track. So on the Blu-ray, what they did is they were able to use the stereo track, um, that exists and go in and do their best to recreate the separation. And they were able to separate all of the surround channels because they still had that preserved only sound effects optical track for the rear channels. So it's not a complete loss, but we will never unfortunately hear the full intended, um, soundscape
0: yeah which is a shame um and it's another reason to keep things so pr- like if you can find things get them preserved asap um you know obviously i'm speaking to a fake rich person that doesn't actually exist um but anyway back to this chase um he chases her down and she enters into scott's house and scott is as nice as as nice a person i'm sure paul Pace- paul Pace- Pace- was. Um he doesn't have much to contribute apart from doing some art for Jared down the line. Um and what's more, the uh at the Flanagan house, uh Mrs. Flanagan uh clearly is, you know, trying to set the record straight on what's going on. Um and they we bring ourselves over to uh the morgue. And we get this really neat morgue scene that is very, um, it's not like creepy the way we think of a morgue scene today, but we have people rolling in the body. And then at one point we have one of the bodies pop up and it's kind of in the foreground to give the audience a little jolt clearly with the 3D. And they say like, oh, that's just the embalming fluid. You better get used to the bodies just popping up like that. And I i know nothing about... Uh, the the craftsmanship of of working as a mortician is that true like i have no fucking clue because that Um, would be crazy
1: (laughs) yeah i i i don't know this for sure i wouldn't bet my life on it but it's very much my understanding that the embalming fluid fluid is the opposite (laughs) like is is there to do the opposite of that So Um, these guys are just idiots.
0: (laughs) They're they're actually dealing with people coming back from the dead and they're just fucking stupid. (laughs) Because that body wouldn't pop up for no reason.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's there to be a little bit of a jolt in a horror film. Um, It's played for a nice gimmick with the 3D Mm -hmm. and then it's all laughed away by the final line of the film or of the scene, which is, isn't that just like a woman always wanting the last word or something like that exactly yeah yeah that's a line that exists in this movie um but it actually is a direct ripoff or not ripoff but it's a direct port from the uh mystery of the house uh, of the wax museum from yeah, 1933. Mystery. So yeah, it's, Again, uh, they're porting over a lot changed from, from 1933 to 1962.
0: Well, no, I mean, uh, let's be, let's be honest when it comes to the script of this movie, like they are pouring over a ton from mystery at the wax museum, um, to the point of like, there's similar setups visually that mystery, of the wax museum has that house of wax over, um, but, there's there's a kind of cleanliness to this movie in its horror realm that doesn't exist in or the Wax Museum. One thing that I want to point out, as this is a, mis, a, a kind of a horror movie, uh, aesthetic for the 50s, it does feel very sanitary. Like it doesn't feel like it's got a the the only thing that feels lived in about it is the sets that they're using um outside. But once we get inside, there's a lot more of a um, a cleanliness to it. The only, the exception being Jared's, uh, wax layer at the end, but even it doesn't feel too creepy so much as just industrial. Um, like there's no, there's not a lot of character to Jared's wax layer in this movie. It's very, very standard. Like, because I don't see a lot of work with, shadow in that la- in that lair. I see a lot of work with shadow outside the door of that lair. <laughs> but I don't see a lot of work with the shadow in the lair itself. Um so I think if you're looking for a creepier atmosphere, like a 10-time creepier atmosphere, you'd want to go with Mystery at the Wax Museum. If you're looking for a refined version of it, it's a- its House of Wax. Um and and I don't know what 3D would have to do with that possibly interfering with the visual scheme of what the environment
1: could look like. Um, I'm, I'm happy to jump into that. If yeah, you would absolutely. like, I actually have an excerpt from American cinematographer on, um, on house of wax um, specifically talking about those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Pev Marley, I'll, I'll just, I'll quote directly from this just to kind of get through it. Um, So it says, Pev Marley discusses the photography of this picture with the ease amounting to understatement. Curiously enough, said Marley, our main problem in 3D filming is not so much mechanical as dramatic. By that, I mean that we must and are constantly concerned about directing the audience's attention where we want it. In three dimensions, every element in the scene has a similar special value, and the eye tends to roam around and explore these elements much more than a flat film. The problem is to corral the viewer's attention and make him look at what you want him to look at, which is of course the dramatic focal point of what is going on in the scene. Any other single element which juts out of the frame and steals audience attention away from where it ought to be is bad and should be avoided. Um, And Marley is of the opinion that the solution to this problem depends upon three factors. First, The staging of the action must be that the eye will be directed to which it is most important. Second, lighting should be arranged at least up to a point so that it will subdue that which is not important and points up to that which is. And third, the point of convergence of the twin lenses uh, should be thrown in favor of the area of principal interest, thus directing audience attention to the place where it should be. So a lot of consideration went into Exactly what you're talking about, whether it's, you know, it's a combination between the staging, the lighting, and then also manipulating the actual uh, camera device Mm -hmm. to to make all of that work.
0: And this is something we discussed at in a different form when talking dial in for murder, because Hitchcock understood that there would be a a change up in how you direct movies for 3D Um, going back to that press release that you brought up in the episode itself. Um, so it's interesting to note how now 3d tech is such that you could make a very shadow and grimy laden film in 3d and not have those same considerations because the technology has advanced as such. Um, I'm trying to think of a good horror film in 3d that kind of gives a good example
1: of this, but I'm drawing a blank. Um, Well, with with modern technology, actually, even I should say, even with modern technology, uh, dark, darkly lit scenes are still an issue um, because you have the issue of the polarized lenses, whether you're watching in a passive system like you would have in a movie theater or an active system um, with uh, that I personally have with my projector. A lot of 3D uh, televisions use an active system you, you lose a lot of the light that is hitting the screen with these polarized lenses. And so having too dim of a, of a scene can actually really hurt it. Like, I know that, um, almost all the 3d effect is completely lost. If you see a 3d conversion of the beginning of, of solo, uh, was a big complaint. And then also things like there was a Texas chainsaw. I think it was the beginning, or maybe it was just it was called, called t- Chainsaw uh, Massacre. No, it was
0: called Texas Chainsaw 3D Marshall. And you, 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 oh, you, you haven't seen it yet, have you?
1: Uh no, it's sitting on my shelf, but I, I have not oh. watched it yet. But yeah. apparently, that suffer the 3D suffers a lot in that film because of how dark it is, as well as some examples.
0: That's not the only thing that suffers in Texas Chainsaw 3D Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get into it. All I'm going to tell you is is that there's some decisions made in the last 30 to 45 minutes of that movie that I don't agree with on any level imaginable. <laughs> it's Fair um. But once you've seen it, text me. <laughs> um, and uh, but anyway, long story short, Kathy's body is then stolen away from the morgue uh, by the mysterious uh, hooded figure, um, and she is one of many that have been murdered by this psychopath because amongst other people are a, I believe it was a district attorney is what they said in the film. Um, it's kind of irrelevant. The only thing that this one amongst these other bodies that have been taken, the only importance that one of them has is that, uh, one of his lost items ends up leading to the revelation that we're going to unfold by the end of the story. Um, but As this is all going on and they're on the lookout for a killer, Sydney Wallace is uh, about to enter a, uh, a, a, a kind of a back alley office uh, for an artist. He doesn't know, but he gets greeted at the door by um, a, a rather large looking mute man named Igor, played by me, Charlie Brunson here's the thing I want to know from the bottom of my heart. I want to know who the fuck dubbed in Charlie Bronson's grunts because they sound, they are not coming from him. Marshall. <laughs> they are not his grunts are, those are not Charles Bronson grunts. Those are grunts from a person who like, I honestly thought it was Mel Blanc <laughs> Because <laughs> it's the only thing I could conjure in my head going like, Nope, this isn't Charlie Bronson. He doesn't sound this tough, but, It doesn't matter. Igor leads him into the art space of, oh my God, Marshall, Professor Jared is alive. He's alive. And he's in a wheelchair. And he, his hands are burned. He can use them for basic motor functions, but he can't create the arts that he used to. So he uses people like Igor to fashion uh, the sculptures for him or assist him with things. Jared convinces Sidney Wallace to invest in his new venture and Jared has changed he now realizes that he must create horrific art for the masses he must go into sensationalism he must go into uh, the macabre and the diabolical using the fear that comes from these images that scare people in order to elicit a reaction from his art Um, in other words he's a sellout (laughs) So, uh, I, 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 it's, it's interesting to see, um, him acquiesce to this so much because I, 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 I don't know if he's trying to get back into his artistic historical world or if he's just completely changed to the point of madness. Like, because when he, when he meets Sue and he wants to create his new Marie Antoinette, like, he's basically like, it's almost like he's just gone back into his historical mode, and he's using his means of horror to construct it. So, is this just a big old runaround for Sidney Wallace, or I don't know? Like, I guess it doesn't matter because it's never bothered me in the past. But I kind of like was trying to think about like, does this character turn like, does is this all really just a cover up for him to just start killing people, or is he really trying to get back into that art world because? As I said before this movie is trying to deal with the art versus commerce debate and I think it's I that's why I think it's mainly used as a prop because the turn doesn't make sense if that's the case.
1: Yeah, I mean I I guess this is probably a good time for me to reveal <laughs> my my thoughts. Go ahead. Is when when I said I was excited to talk about, you know, this film on here I I was not lying but I, I uh, I am excited to talk about pretty much every other aspect other than the story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I find the story and the screenplay utterly lacking and completely nonsensical <laughs> and <laughs> uh, really missing the target, quite frankly, with how, how much opportunity there is there. Um, and I think that you just really hit the nail on the head um, is, um, the film really struggles in a lot of ways uh, as sort of a driving plot. Um, shocker, I'm going to talk about it having a protagonist problem um, because it does. But I think that, you know, the the, the character of Professor, Professor Henry Jarrett is such a fascinating character. And you put a character like this in the hands of Vincent Price in just his pure amazingness, just like untainted Vincent price This was before... Before he was Vincent yeah, Price, is, right? As bef- as as this, this is character.
0: Before *Pit and the Pendulum*, this is before the persona is fully formed. This is even before *The Fly*, right. which is not uh, within the wheelhouse of the Vincent Price persona, but is another horror film. Like the '50s with horror and Vincent Price seems like the testing ground. I think that when people think haunted house, or when they people think Vincent Price and horror their first reaction is always going to be either house of wax or house on haunted Hill. I think those are the first two you go to. Um, because house on haunted Hill is like a definitive movie that's readily available for people to watch. Um, and, uh, that persona is fully formed by the time you get to house on haunted Hill before that he's, he's working around now. Even though I just mentioned him saying being a prop, though I wanted to do, say on the top of Vincent Price's performance, he's the reason the character works,
1: if at all. Absolutely, and that's that's part of my criticism is that is like I guess to take a couple steps back and and just sort of take into consideration the production of of the film. I think that um, obviously Warner Brothers had access to the rights to this screenplay by Crane Wilbur in the original 1933 mm-hmm. film. And they reworked it and said, "Yeah, I guess this is basically good to go." Let's now we're going to devote all of our time and attention on the technology and the sets and all of that kind of stuff. And there really isn't a lot of adaptation work to update anything. They kept the film in its original uh, early century timeline. They didn't update it to be you know to take place in the fifties or anything like that. But I just I think that like the character of professional Professor Henry Jared is just such a this very soft-spoken and delicate um, person, who is very eccentric and a little off, but so innocently so, and his he is undone, sort of by that innocence in this, you know, tragedy of of having his, uh, you know, his wax works and all of his creations burned to the ground and him in the process, not only visually scarred, but artistically scarred that he's no longer able to create artistically Mm -hmm. anymore. And that this has this, as we come to find out in the film, you know, that this twists him psychologically as well, that now he is broken and, and scarred. And he's like, if I can't artistically recreate these things, then I'm going to find people in real life that are inspiring to me. And I'm going to murder them and steal their bodies and cover them in wax and then put them up in a wax museum that is going to satiate the, the bloodlust of the masses with all of these horrific vignettes from history. And that is such a captivating, interesting story that we only get through exposition or uh, illusion in this film because we're just bouncing back and forth between all of these different perspectives of people who like ultimately don't matter and aren't that interesting yeah, uh, and that we don't care about that much. And, and like, like you said, like this, from that aspect, it really kind of falls apart here. Not to mention, not to mention just the, all of the logical misconnections. Right.
0: Right. Now here's what I'll say about that in regards to it, because full disclosure, I'm a fan of this movie. Um, it's a movie that I go back to often. In fact, last year I rewatched it 3 different times because I just had fun watching Vincent Price working in that role. Um having said that though, it's not a dense movie and I don't think it's very clear that it's not attempting to be. Um Mystery at the Wax Museum has an element of uh creakiness to it that find that I find more compelling than the Toth's film in terms of something I want to go back to and kind of study and look at. Um, And it also has the element of two strip technicolor, which I I'll ultimately find more fascinating than 3d because it is like this stepping stone for uh, the full technicolor process that I, I, I think that certain directors knew how to make something pretty beautiful out of it. Um, And when it comes to Jared, this transformation, like ultimately, that's why I think that the the theme of art versus commerce is just a prop to the screenwriters and to the people who are developing this particular version of the story. And also, <clears throat> in terms of the concept of, you know, I need, because it, as you alluded to, the subjects that he's going to use now have to be taken from real life. And in Jared's case, he's going to literally do that. He's going to take these bodies that he's killed and create the wax figures out of them and the the big thing that uh i noticed about this film in terms of a content structure is that this is a film this is an idea for a movie that's 20 years ahead of its time and not able to keep up with the the idea behind it um Mystery at the Wax Museum, I think, gets around it because it more tries to be a mystery horror movie than just a horror movie. This one, I think, is going for the pure haunted house spooky fair, um, And I think that the idea of killing a body and then making it into a wax figure is something that lends itself better to being a purely visual experience. And that's not an experience you're going to get in nineteen fifties Hollywood, still being run in, being run by the Breen office and eventually the Sherlock office. So it's almost like the idea is uh, it, the the idea is too far ahead for the film. So you're relying on this exposition and the saving grace that you have with this movie is that you have an actor like Vincent Price who can lay into the. The 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 dark and the morbid in such a delightful way that it captivates you. Um, so if anything, the like the, you don't need Charles Bronson's Igor character. Like you really don't need him as a character. He's one of two henchmen, the other one being Leon, who is frankly the most useless henchman in movie history. <laughs> like not just from like literally until he is important to the plot he is in the background and barely saying anything to anybody. <laughs> like,
1: Although like, I do have to say like credit where credit's due and, and all, all respect in the world to Phyllis Kirk and Carolyn Jones, but Nedra Young in that role is the most beautiful person in this film. Like showstoppingly beautiful. But by the time film. you get to the end. Yeah. <laughs> because he's, He's so
0: much in the background. He becomes important at the end because this is something that threw me off because that performance is beautiful, but it, it's, it's, to me, it felt like a distraction
1: because. No, I'm saying him as a human being. Yeah. Is yo, being, yeah, yeah. Him like, as, yeah. The, the performance is great, but even in the background, I am just like, what's, what's going on with this, uh, 10 in the background going over here. <laughs> Like he is just he is the epitome of like tall, dark, and handsome and is just so captivating and is really underused and it's really sad that he actually had his, his credit pulled from the film because of uh the McCarthy era blacklist. Yep, he was a uh, he was he was an actor and a screenwriter
0: who was blacklisted during this period. Um he is credited with writing the screenplay for Jailhouse Rock, uh the Elvis Presley movie. Um he He actually starts off in the fifties with bombs over Burma and his final role would be seconds, uh, from 1960, uh, from 1966. Um, and he died from a heart attack at the age of 54, um, in 1968. So the, 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 the blacklisting, I don't know. I I mean, I don't have any stories as to whether or not like this completely diminished him, but, you know, like, it sucks to be dying at a, at a heart attack that young an age. So, um, but it's interesting how a studio like Warner Brothers, who was very, very involved in, um, uh, supporting the blacklisting, um, somehow didn't notice that <laughs> that this guy playing Leon was sneaking around the studio. So somebody, I,
1: somebody must have covered up for him, <laughs> uh, well, from what I understand is that the thing that that caused his credit to be pulled is that actually the film was released with his credit intact. And then around the time of the release, he actually appeared um, in front of the committee and was extremely adversarial to them. And that that made news. And it made news in such a way that Warners had the his his credit scrubbed from the opening credits. So then that's
0: something that I didn't even realize when digging into the uh production history on this film. That's fascinating. So this is so they so to this day we don't have his credit because of that particular blacklisting. That's that's amazing. I mean it's terrible, but like from the grand scheme of talking about it it's a fascinating thing that's to have, have occurred on this. And I I like how the character has remorse for his actions, even though it seems like it's only coming at the temptation of, I can have a drink if I talk. (laughs) Um, When he finally gives up that Jared is killing all these people. And I, 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 I just felt like in the grand scheme of the film, it's almost like you could have cut around this and had the detectives just kind of figure it out without needing these scenes of him. But I appreciate the effort to bring dimension to a henchman character, which primarily more often than not, if you've got a henchman in a horror movie such as this, um, or at least in concept, more than likely they're going to be like a, you know, uh, a a bit more of an acquiescing, creepy bad guy. They're not going to have that kind of remorse and feeling like, um, I don't know if what, I, what I'm saying is getting across, but it just, it just feel like it's interesting that they try to do something with that character, but it doesn't need to be there. <laughs> like, it's almost like, I don't know if they're trying to make it more interesting or not. Um,
1: well, I guess, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily expect for, the film to be approached this way in in 52 um in during production um but i like I, I there's just so much opportunity there to really dive into these things is that we have this interesting character who it, all of these interesting characters but including you know his character of this person who is so such a slave to alcohol and whatever past demons that um, you know, that uh, Jared is able to prey on and kind of bring him under his wing as this person who's willing to steal and embalm bodies and um, up to and including even probably murder
0: people. And again, the only, the only reason why I say it doesn't work is because we, we don't, if we're going to go into that, I wish the movie were longer. Like I wish that the movie were like an hour and 14 or or an hour and 44
1: minutes. Like give me more scenes with them. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love to, it'd be a fun exercise to sort of like say, let's do an actual remake adaptation of this and stick with the, um, stick with the character of Henry Jared through the entire way and 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 lose the horrible quote unquote mystery of who this disfigured person is it's cuz it's, cause it's um, almost
0: like you look at that you, you look at that lame that the makeup in, on Jared isn't
1: lame but like you know it's, it's phenomenal it, it, i i really like the makeup but the presentation of it is we just watched Jared pass out and then we see this place explode and all these fire trucks show up and then we see a person who's horribly burned like we already know the mystery the mystery's been solved right
0: exactly whereas like i in the mystery of the wax museum it feels like the mystery is a little bit more um laid into this one is more focused on it's 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 frustrating to say that the movie is more focused on tech, but it is like it, it is it is being made with an implicit goal in mind to put people in their seats and give them a give them a roller coaster ride. And I I argue you do get that in this movie. You get a lot of excitement throughout this movie thrown at you, and it's going to be even more exciting, Marshall, because Sidney Wallace is going to fund this new venture, and we pretty much cut right into after an intermission, um, which is isn't it wonderful to have an intermission for an 88 minute movie, <laughs> which we know the reason we know the reason why, because they had to, um, they couldn't run the whole film um, uh, through the, through the projector at once. They had to, you have to change reels. And in the case of the techno the 3d tech, it's an even more arduous process.
1: Um, well, essentially, essentially what it was is you can fit, your standard length film onto two reels. And so every movie theater back then was equipped with two projectors. Right. And you would just switch from one projector for the first half of the film reel onto the second. Or if they couldn't fit onto two reels, you could just switch back and forth in that sort of manner. But in a 3D film, you're running two pieces of film at the exact same time. So both projectors are occupied at all times. So you have to have an intermission to do a full swap.
0: And that's, and when it, when it comes to a 2d film, that's the reason you have cigarette burns. And that's why David Fincher did that in (laughs) mank. And uh, the, the idea of changing out the reels in this case, you need a full 10 minute intermission. um, And then you come back and this place is a booming Marshall. It's a booming.
1: It's got every. Which I'm I'm sorry. While we're talking about the intermission, uh, I I just I have to touch on this anecdote from the the exhibition of this film because it is so horrific. Go ahead. um, That there was a particular screening of this film where a report that a reporter went to, where the ten minute intermission went on for over twenty minutes, and then everyone was ushered back into the theater. And then they were shown newsreels. And then the lights came up. And then it dimmed again. And they were shown some short films. And then it came up again. And everyone sort of kind of left. (laughs) And this reporter (laughs) talked to the exhibitor, to the theater owner, and was like, what is going on? And what happened was that another theater across town asked to borrow the second half of the film <laughs> because something happened with their reel and it was promised to be back on time and then something got jammed up so they it ruined the screening across town and then it couldn't get back in time for the screening that this reporter was at so it was also it ruined ended up ruining two different oh screenings my of the God.
0: <laughs> Marshall we don't have an immor- the The goal of this show is to provide modern allusions to films of the past. <laughs> There's only one instance that I could think of that would compare it today. Um when DVDs first came out, if you had a film longer than I would want to say like like more than two and a half hours, you were either dealing with a double sided disc or disc one has part one of the movie and disc two. Has the other part. So, like, Gangs in New York had part one on one disc, part two on the second disc. That would be like if I loaned you out the second disc of Gangs in New York (laughs) and I'm deciding I want to watch Gangs in New York and I've only got the one disc and I try to call you to be like, Marshall, did you finish up watching the second half of Gangs in New York? (laughs) And being like, No, I'm sorry, man. It got scratched up and like I I used it as a coffee, as a coaster for my coffee cup. I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's like that's a that's a plot I would love to like hand to like Steven Soderbergh to turn into a a period piece retelling of that particular theater anecdote of just everything that these theater owners had to go through to coordinate like, well, if you start your screening 30 minutes before mine, then And we're only, you know, whatever, ten minute carriage ride apart from each other, then everything should totally be fine. And then it just kind of becomes this, you know, comedy of errors of things going wrong and all of that kind of stuff. And you could have Coen Brothers esque characters all involved with it. Like it, it, that would be a joy. Marshall,
0: Marshall, about you know
1: the mystery of the House of Wax. Marshall, (laughs) why are
0: we? Why are we trying to give it to Soderbergh or the Coen Brothers? We should write this fucking script. (laughs)
1: Like
0: that would be. Hey,
1: you know what? Zach, right now, as I understand it, theaters are kind of empty right now. So I'm sure that we could rent them out for locations pretty inexpensively. That's the thing that we just need some money. Well, we'd have to film it in the
0: Alamo and we'd have to try to film it during the week when they're not open. And we'd have to. The only real money would be coming from costumes and then trying to we there are buildings around downtown where we could feasibly get this done. Oh, my God. We'll we'll talk off. We'll talk off Mike afterward. But anyway, back to the back to this mist- this wax museum, Marshall. It's booming with so much activity. It has all of the oh. pop and panache of uh, a county fair, <laughs> like or like a big world's fair exhibition. They even they have everything here, Marshall. Do you know what they even have? They have a paddle ball guy, which is not easy to get. <laughs> No. Let's talk about Paddleball Guy for a minute. What he? Okay, yeah, we... I, I think Paddleball Guy is the third best actor in this movie. The first being Vincent Price and the second being Charles Bronson. Because <laughs> <laughs> if we're talking in terms of legacy... <laughs> um, I, but now, granted, um, now that I know more about... <laughs> who plays Leon, I'm gonna switch that up and say that paddle ball paddle ball guy is still the third best and Charles Bronson is now fourth. <laughs> um but Fair. yeah, let's talk about paddleball guy because I think he unfortunately um is a representative for three D and why people find it hokey uh in this particular era uh, of film. Um Yes, yeah, so you're speaking of Reggie mm-hmm. Rymel. Reggie Rymel. And I just, I get the impression that somebody who is a 3D enthusiast might find this degrading.
1: <laughs> well, I I do and I don't. I mean, I think that, I mean, in the, in the opening scene, in the opening fight scene, you know, in the big fire, when you see an actor very noticeably have to be very strategic about throwing a chair towards the camera, but not at the camera in order to get that screen. And then you see water thrown over a wax figure that's on fire and instead towards a camera to get the 3D effect. You understand sort of the world that you're operating in. Um, I think the thing that makes the paddleball guy so jarring uh, especially in a in a home experience, is that you've just seen this title card come up that says intermission and it hasn't you haven't gone out to have an intermission. And so the last thing that we're left with is this promise of like, yes, I'm going to reinvest in in your wax museum. Sure, let's open it. And then we have this intermission card, and now it's the grand opening of the House of Wax, and we have this 114-minute paddle ball experience of a guy with two paddle balls on camera just doing the perfect, you know, sideshow, vaudevillian, uh, step-right-up sort of voice and launching these paddleball balls at the camera for so freaking long. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's, it's an extremely well done effect. Like it is some of the best pop out 3d that I've ever seen. Um, but it just, it goes on and on and on and on. And it's also over, he's speaking the entire time. So actually I was thinking about doing this for this podcast. And then ultimately I was like, it was enough to deal with when I had vision at my disposal, trying to do that to a podcast audience, but of, of doing an announcement for this podcast with this going on in the background. (laughs) The entire time that I'm talking and I'm saying, hey, welcome to Baliu. I'm Marshall and Zach is your host, as always. It's just, it's incessant and it goes on and on and it's absurd. I have some Um, lines
0: if you would like me to try my best Reggie
1: Reimer. (laughs) You you can go for it.
0: (laughs) Well, there's someone with a bag of popcorn. Close your mouth. It's the bag I'm aiming at, not your tonsils. (laughs)
1: yeah it's here here's the thing wait, wait, here's the thing wait, that wait, i read after wait, do watching it one the film more time.
0: wait marshall that, do it one more time i've got one more for you
1: okay go. here we go
0: <laughs> see the house of wax and improve your mind get your ticket from the little lady at the box office
1: <laughs> yes that's it's that was it i mean i the the one thing that i read up after the fact that made all of it better and all of it worthwhile and it made me really uh just be so nostalgic for a time that I, in in movie theater history that i wasn't even alive for is that there was actually a national issue because warner brothers bought 10 million paddleball games <laughs> In order to have marketing for this film, they put on the House of Wax logo on the back of them and there was this big thing that was like... 10 million paddleball games and big tie-up. Check your dealers early. The Woolworth, JC Penney, Crest, wow. R. H. Macy stores, toy and novelty shops, and set up your window counter displays, lobby booths, set contest too with newsboys and school kids on stage, with champs appearing out front. This whole thing was a huge push by Warner Brothers for marketing, and they bought up 10 million paddleball games for this film. That's-
0: Marshall was television that much of a threat? <laughs> it really was, I guess. God damn that fucking idiot box! <laughs> that's, so dis- that's so discouraging. And let's let's be clear, Reggie Rymel, This is his really his only film role, <laughs> and he's uh, his. His only other appearances are on the Spike Jones show in 1954 as himself. uh, And on the Colgate Comedy Hour being hosted that particular evening by Eddie Cantor. (laughs) So, and he's having to follow the Will Mastin trio and Sammy Davis Jr. (laughs) With Sammy Davis Jr. in it. God damn it. (laughs) Um, That being said, Marshall guess who I wanted to win best supporting actor in the 1953 Academy Awards. It certainly wasn't anybody of merit. (laughs) It's paddleball guy. (laughs) Anyway, back to the house of wax. Uh, so Jared has set up modern, uh, like up to the date crimes and also crimes of the past as his exhibits. Um, he has a couple. I wanted to quickly kind of go through some of them. Um, well first by the way he does go by some of the historical exhibits as like a pre-show but then they go into um uh Henry V or is it Henry VIII one of the Henrys um and uh who is de- decapitating Anne Boleyn at the guillotine and he goes he invented the shortcut to divorce <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, cool. We're getting Vincent Priceisms. I love this. This is like the saving grace. Again, he's the reason you're watching this movie. It's nothing else. Uh, well, um, unless you've got Marshall yes. set up. Um, and uh, then they go into William Kemmler and they show the electric chair being used for the first time. Uh, and then they go to uh, a a woman at the rack, Lady Anne Askew. Um, not Lady View Askew, Lady Anne Askew. Um, and um, they show uh, the woman at the rack and then uh they they show Bluebeard um, and that's when uh one of the more emphatic girls at the at the exhibit faints um because of you know if you know what bluebeard did Bluebeard killed a bunch of his wives and whatnot he you know got away with a bunch of murder <laughs> and his name is now a term used for people who commit mattress <laughs> uh, who commit uh, crimes against their spouses so um and uh as all this is going on, Kathy, um, uh, Kathy still, Kathy has been disappeared for, uh, for months, uh, right, right, presumed uh, has been found dead and she's, but she's been missing from the morgue and Sue and Scott are at this opening for the museum at this attraction for the museum. And Sue is looking around and she sees the Joan of Arc um, wax figure. And it looks suspiciously like Kathy and, and, she uh she starts making a, a bit of a fuss over it and jared to his credit hears it and goes oh i've got to come up with some kind of excuse um well you see i saw photos of her in the uh in the paper and i just got inspired doesn't she look do you think she would mind being you know like the inspiration for my you know w- woman who was burned at the stake what do you what do you think sue i i don't know <laughs> like is <laughs> His his uh, cover-up is flimsy, to say the least, even though it's backed up, because P- the the officers at the police station do say that he had come to look at photographs. But I'm just like, That's, you're not explaining the earring yet, and when we finally get to the earring, you just kind of really don't have anything other than, well let me just show you your own head in a box because you would be the perfect Marie Antoinette and I'm not going to get over this for the rest of the movie, guys. Um, And so, yeah, she, she, she gets, she's basically kind of like taken in by this excuse. And that's when Jared notices that she very much looks like the Marie Antoinette statue, uh, a a figure that he had built before uh, the fire. And so suddenly he's getting, you know, an art boner and uh, basically decides, like, this is going to be my new Marie Antoinette. I just got to figure out a way to kill her now. Um, and uh, it seems like at first he, he's trying to lay into, like, why don't you come and model for me? It'd be perfect. Um, and uh, this is when... The movie becomes more of a traditional horror movie and less concerned with mystery. Um, the only real mystery that has to be solved is by the cops of this film, who I find it interesting that amongst the people who are top billed in this movie, one of them is the cop, Frank Lovejoy. Um, they're not like, as far as cops in a horror movie are concerned, they're fine. Um, they don't really they're they're, they're they're real intricate dealings with this plot begin when they notice that the John Wilkes Booth statue looks suspiciously like this mystery missing district attorney <laughs> and they're even playing with the mustache of it all um, to which Leon tells them to screw off and then they ask if they recognize Leon somewhere before and. One of the reasons why I think Leon is like the the worst henchman is because he's the most easily recognizable. If somebody's able to pick him out <laughs> pretty quickly, <laughs> like clearly he's not covering himself up very well. Um, and then, as the plot goes along, we get another kind of extravagant use of 3D at, at a Folies um, kind of like a Moulin Rouge type of setting where p- girls are doing the can can and you know sue has thoughts about women you know showing their legs off that much and you know it's whatever it's a scene in three d it's another frivolous three d scene it's not as exciting as paddleball guy um but it's there you know it's enjoyable um and then we basically come to
1: yeah i I gotta sorry just on that note i gotta I'm sorry I can't hold this in any any longer also just like this film is so thirsty like. Elaborate the the 1950s sexual repression is like is dripping off of the screen more than the wax figures do in the grand fire. Like <laughs> there is so there is such an undercurrent of sexual repression throughout this entire film. And not as a theme, just like from an from like an artistic. Like filmmaking standpoint of in the beginning when we're being shown around all of the, um, historical exhibits, people are trying to look under, uh, some chest coverings of Cleopatra's AIDS. And, um, once we get to the horror exhibits, there's a gentleman being murdered in a bathtub. And, uh, one of the one of the women in the group of women that is fainting is like, are like trying to see if they can see anything in the bathtub. There are just like copious zoom ins and focusing on the underdresses of the can can dancers, the aforementioned cave people being dragged by the hair. Um, The, and then the final sort of like the, the sort of coup de grace of paddleball guy is he launches three of the balls out towards the audience and then into his mouth. And we get another fainting from these women because they're just so taken back by seeing three balls in someone's mouth that it's just, it's, it's covering the screen. It's ridiculous. Our, our, our uh, female lead at the end is stripped naked in order to be covered in wax. Like it is just, it's so ridiculously uncomfortable. It's like watching an awkward like middle schooler sort of coming into that pubescent era and just like everywhere he looks, he is obsessed with what is rage, all the hormones raging through his body. That is what this film felt like from that standpoint. It's, it is that,
0: That That is an interesting angle on it. I didn't even like consider that fully apart from Vincent price. Jared as a character, I felt like was the, the primary, like, Sexual fixation because he, I, I, and I feel like he utilizes the Marie Antoinette statue as his primary focus. That and her being stripped naked in order to be dipped in wax, um, or or covered in wax. Um, and I, 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 but I didn't even think about the reasons why these women would be fainting. But there is that one scene where the Millie and the other girls are looking at the belly dancer and they're like, I could wiggle my hips like that. And they just feel ashamed of even mentioning it. This is early 1900s, New York. It's still very Victorian, very repressed. Um, So like there's a logical reason for it existing in this movie, but you're right. Since it's the fifties, there's this um, not so subtle uh, form of innuendo permeating throughout, because this is something you'll get away with in the movies and not on television. Um, and I don't know how you judge a sex comedy of the fifties today without giggling your ass off at the, um, uh, at the obviousness of everything, but this is a film that doesn't necessarily need it because it's a, it's more of a horror film, but they're providing that levity for what they assume is the supreme terror, um, which
1: comes. Yeah. Well, it, it, it struck me like it, the things that I mentioned, like they weren't presented in a sort of like clever, like nod a la Hitchcock. They really felt like this, like frustrated sexual repression. Um, In, in, it, it was just like, it was very leering the sort of the way that it was, it was presented. It was extremely, you know, like you want to look at like early or even just like fifties era, male gaze of just like the way that it is presented in the like, over obsession with this undercurrent of sexuality throughout the entire film from so many of the different characters. It was just, it it was very much of note to me. No, it's, and it's a totally, uh, a totally good point to bring up within that because
0: it does lay into some imagery as we get to the end, which we'll, we'll get, we'll get to that pretty quick because there's not a lot that happens in the middle apart from, Sue going up and investigating the Joan of Arc figure a little bit more thoroughly and noticing the earring and, uh, Jared doesn't have really a response to it. So again, he primarily uses it as an excuse to be like, well, let me show you my further obsession here. Look, here's your head in a box. Your, your boyfriend helped me design it. (laughs) Like, and I love the image of Vincent price, uh, looking at a uh holding uh having igor hold out a a a woman's head in a box and looking at the woman going like this is normal right (laughs) it's a nice vincent price-esque image that i think works very well for the uh um uh for the grand scheme of uh what we would get with Vincent price down the line. It's very much the setup for what you end up seeing down the line with, um, uh, his work with Roger Corman, especially where there's a lot of humor mixed in with the, uh, the, the macabre imagery that you're setting up with this. And,
1: but correct me if I'm wrong, it makes no sense. No, because that's the first time that Henry Jared has seen, um, Sue, Right. This is the second time that he's seen her, so he's already established
0: a rapport with Scott, and Scott started helping him mold wax figures. So that's oh, where gotcha. that's where that's coming from. But he's not interested in having just a reference point. I need you. I need the entire. Can you come model for me next week, or like you know when anytime you get a chance to? Because like you're just God. You just look like that fat my my that that former figure of mine, and I just if I. I'm, I'm going to kill you, but I mean, ma'am, it would be totally wonderful if you could come and help me
1: out like that. that. But that's the other thing that doesn't make any sense to me. So like, I'm, and I know that this film doesn't make sense, but just like walk through this with me. The, the idea is, is that Jared can't sculpt anymore. And so is partly taking out his frustration and his sort of like twisted mental state by murdering people and then just covering them in wax and then putting them in these exhibits so the idea is to my understanding that every single one of these exhibits is a real dead body um i think most of them are
0: because the because the cops only allude to a few murders they don't allude to a bunch because one of the exhibits is matthew because he said like i want recent attractions in here like people like right right out of the paper and that uh that's what it ends up being. I think that the majority of the history figures are probably sculpted by Leon, or I mean, unless they're you know.
1: Yeah, as my understanding, like Igor only sculpted Kemler. He only the did Kemler figure that looks like yeah, him, and then Leon did the other because that's all he yeah, can and do. Then Leon did the other. No, but Leon can't sculpt because he's the one who's doing all the dirty stuff. That like his his role as an aide as an artist is just guys yeah so he's so then maybe oh no so then it is full of dead bodies so then okay who sculpted this head and why
0: I, then i would assume scott because <laughs> scott but if
1: he has now someone who can sculpt what's the reason for bringing her in to either model or kill i wonder if i mean again we're trying to put
0: too much um We might be trying to put too much uh, um, importance into a situation involving um, Vincent Price's character, but uh, he's trying to recreate that moment in his life when he was a true artist and that he hadn't turned his back on beauty completely. Um, cause that's a line in the movie is like, have you turned your back on beauty professor? And he goes, no, 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 no. Like that's. So I think that perhaps initially his thought is, well, I'll have her come in and be the perfect model. But also the other way to read it is, is that, Oh, he's going to kill her. He's just doing a, you know, a seduction or a dance or whatever beforehand. Um, because.
1: Oh, okay. I love that. I, that. That would be a thing I would love is where Sh- Sue becomes his sort of like Chance of redemption. Except it's not clear. But then that gets ruined. Except it's not
0: really clarified. If there's a moment for that redemption, it doesn't happen. Cause I think we can just get to the end of the movie now with this. Um, It all leads up to Sue trying to get for like, basically confirm that this is what she suspects it is. And she does this by pulling off the, um, uh, the wig of the Joan of Arc uh, wax figure to see that it is in fact Kathy herself because um, her blonde hair suddenly appears flowing. And that's when Jared discovers her and goes, Oh, you shouldn't have done that. And, <laughs> uh, and that's when we get the revelation that Jared is not only not crippled, um, but Jared doesn't really have Jared's face. <laughs> and Marshall, I think one of the reasons I love this movie is because I still love this reveal, even though you can see it a mile away. Her smashing Vincent Price's head and Vincent Price's head crumbling apart to reveal the hooded figure, (laughs) the burnt body of the burnt face of Professor Jared. I think that is one of the most iconic images in horror film history, hands down. Like that is in the top 100 of like revelations to the audience, even though, as we said, it should have been pretty obvious to the audience.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal sort of execution and reveal, but really only in a vacuum. Because I think that if we had not seen the burned face beforehand, and it had been Vincent Price, Sans makeup, stealing the body and running after her in the dark as just some cloaked hooded figure like the Shadow and then we come to find that like oh he's actually he's not just gone mad but he is also horribly disfigured in this reveal of her cracking off the wax mask that that would have been an, an earned reveal that also would have been a good payoff but once we see jared at the beginning passed out in a building that blows up and then we see a burned figure it's the only mystery becomes then is the is like is the burned face a a wax mask that he's using to hide his identity, or once we see that Jared's alive and looks fine, or is that the mask? And that's just sort of like the only question mark that could maybe be up in the air is which one of these is wax. Mm-hmm. But that something is wax is not n- is never not on someone's I, mind. I, I have
0: only one question in regards to the logistics of it: what kind of tech? does Jared have to create that elaborate, a wax ruse on his face?
1: (laughs) Because. Well, whatever tech it is, it has to be able to be accomplished through rudimentary motor skills, because that's all he's capable of doing. Marshall,
0: Marshall, (laughs) I'm going to tell you the, the, the most in, in, Ine- in- indelible and juiciest of secrets you-, you ever seen mission impossible with that young tom cruise fellow well they use little mass technology in their fun fact it's been around since the 40s um you- we just didn't talk about it because it was secret service information for for important eyes only and so i just said well we could just use this tech for this particular situation <laughs> like
1: <laughs> yes, Mr. Yeah. Price, I, I just have to correct you that it must have been around since 1900. Yes, that's because... right.
0: 1900. I'm sorry. It's been around for years. It's been around for years. I can't. I. I fun fact, the conduit that I'm using is also a very tired human being. <laughs> um anyway we actually also get the um lurking about of charles bronson uh doing basically the young frankenstein gag from (laughs) where i i put my head amidst a bunch of other heads and you can tell that i'm the real head (laughs) like it's actually a nice creepy image and that image of charles bronson was one of many images used to sell this movie in Italy during re-releases because Charles Bronson was a bigger star overseas, especially in Italy, because of Italian cinema, than Vincent Price. So this was a marketing point. So one of the reasons why the movie endures worldwide is because of Charles Bronson. That was the illusion I meant to, uh, that brought up to earlier. Um, and so now we're basically at the climb, uh, the end of the movie uh Kathy or Sue is uh bound to this table where the wax drips onto the figurines uh that uh that are then going up for display and we get basically the uh the uh origins and beginnings of the uh dastardly uh horror villain speeches that hor- Vincent Price would give in movies down the line um and I think that this is a good one uh and I think that the only thing that I noticed is that in the editing, when they have Sue bound to the table, you notice that they just basically use the same three shots <laughs> every time they're cutting back to her for the cross cutting of the action. When the police finally figure out who Jared is and break down the, or break down the door. Um,
1: and they did not do a good job of communicating to, um, to phyllis kirk when she was and was not on yep. camera because yeah it's... in in the scene over her left shoulder she's just just chilling yep, she's just just having she's a just blast. chilling and just and then in her close-up she's screaming and crying and horrified yep.
0: phyllis was enamored by my speeches marshall to the point where she didn't really give a shit about being scared she just wanted to hear me deliver a creepy monologue <laughs> which who no can no i mean who get marshall don't you want to hear me talk about how life is terrible and we're all going to die <laughs> like that that's basically what it is and that it's it's very jarring it, like to, you you notice it right away and now the climax of this film ultimately involves uh charles bronson getting uh, almost easily subdued by Scott until Charlie Bronson realizes, hey, I'm Charles Bronson, I can knock out this twerp. And he basically gets the upper hand on him, but then the cops show up and subdue Igor, and Scott's been kicked to shit. And the police break down the door, there's a tussle, and Professor Jared falls into the vat of wax, and you hear the horrific Vincent Price scream, uh, and R.I.P. Professor Jared, the day is saved um, and the the we get a wrap up in the police station where uh, they uh, they show the her fake head again and they call it exhibit number one in evidence. Um, and I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure evidence item number 1 is the floating body of Jared <laughs> covered in wax cuz all you have to do is show what he looks like and realize oh this is the guy we've been chasing for the past couple of weeks in in New York <laughs>
1: Um, right, or any of the corpses covered in wax that are in all of the wax yeah, museum.
0: I, you know, uh, hey yo, yeah, listen, do you do you think that those other wax bodies could be connected to this wax body murder? Gee, I don't know, Chuck. I guess we'll have to figure it out after breakfast. Like. <laughs> and uh and then the movie ends with another 3d shot this time of charles bronson's head being stuck out at the audience going don't worry i'll be back very soon in death wishes part one two three four five six seven (laughs) eight like (laughs) and we get the end warner brothers picture now um obviously we've talked a lot about the frivolity of this film and the lack of like true subtext and everything like that. But that's not always what movies need to be about. Sometimes you want to have a good time. And for all that we discussed on the logic issues or the, uh, the lack of cohesive thematics. Uh, I love this movie to this day. Um, it's a fun roller coaster ride. One
1: thing I, one thing I do have to say is speaking, you know, to the climax is, um, there's a sequence where Sue is running away from I believe it's uh Charles Bronson's character and she sort of locks herself into this like back holding laboratory area and that entire sequence of the film especially in 3D is so masterfully mm-hmm. done in terms of the atmosphere and the tension and the creepiness it it like it launched me in the back of my seat and I was transfixed with what was going on like it it was up there from uh you know with like the 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 climax sequence in the dark with the um night vision goggles and science of the lambs just like that level of tension building Mm -hmm. and the the lighting and the music and the 3d all of that was coming together for that final sequence and it was just it was so incredibly amazingly well done that I, it it, 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 it was the high point of the film. Yeah,
0: and I, and I will, I will back that up even having only seen the 2d version, but looking at Charles Bronson in the movie, I know we were, I was kidding about him because it's very easy to do that, but he is a imposing figure in the movie and he does a good job with what he's asked to do um, to the point where it's, it's, it's compelling watching him chase Phyllis Kirk around Um, and especially given the, uh, again, like this is the one scene that I alluded to where the amount of the darkness that's allowed to seep into this movie that's a little bit more lit than it should be, um, absolutely works. It still works even in 2D. Um, and, uh, it does create that proper amount of the climax that we're looking for in this movie before Jared gets a hold of her and is doing his monologue on the table because, while I like the speech that price gives, I think that it's the, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a film that's trying to wrap itself up pretty quickly. <laughs> and the, the mad scientist element of it all that Vincent price is imposing into here is cut short by, uh, by just the, uh, amount of cross cutting between that and the other fight that, uh, Charles Bronson has with Scott. Um, but, it's beautifully filmed. And I think that De Toth is aware of where he's able to make more, uh, to, to create much more interesting scenes than necessarily just relying on Vincent price. Cause you can't just rely on Vincent price alone, even though that's a good way to support your film. <laughs> um, uh, but so let's talk about the reception to this film because, uh, not everybody was hot on this film on the critical end. Um we'll start with my favorite punching bag Bosley Crowther. Um New York Times uh critic. Oh. Um uh, you know him. You love him, Marshall. You can't get enough of him, right? He found the f- May I please. No, you go
1: ahead. Okay. Well, you you talk to him about the general you can you're welcome to talk about the general like how he felt about the film, but I have an extended quote from him about the sound about the one or phonic sound that I would really love to read in his voice. Okay. So I will let you, you go first about the, just the film he in general, f- because I don't, I don't have access he to found that. the
0: film disappointing. And this, this, we may have the same quote, but this picture apparently entirely from the fact that it is badly unbelievably antique in it's melodramatic plot and style shows little or no imagination in the use of the stereoscopic images and nothing but loudness and confusion in the use of so-called stereoscopic sound. Was that the quote? No. Okay, Okay. I'll I'll finish mine. The impression that we get is that its makers were simply and solely interested in getting a flashy sensation onto the screen just as fast as they could, which um, before Marshall says what he's going to say, I'm going to address Mr. Crowther directly. Um, Duh. Like that's what they made it for, and I'm not gonna lie; it's part of the reason why it still endures to this day. Because it's it's literally just flash and pizzazz, and sometimes that's a good thing. Um, it, it depends on who's at the helm of it and who you have involved in it. You can't just do it every single time. Um, uh. So yeah. I yeah, I don't agree with Crowther on it. Um I'm not disappointed by the movie. Um I think when you dig deeper into the plot than you should, then it becomes disappointing. Um and yet we just did this for close to 3 hours, so who am I to talk? But um but I do think that if you separate out what we discussed in terms of like a bad horror plot or like ill, Ill execution, you do have a fun roller coaster ride of a movie that does its job correctly. Now you go ahead and tell me what Mr. Crowther said in in Mr. Crowther's voice because I want to hear what you think Mr. Crowther sounds like.
1: All right. So this is, I don't know that this is what Bosley Crowther sounds like, but with a man with a name, for a man with a name like Bosley Crowther, there's no way that he didn't sound like this. So on April 11th, he wrote, the major causes for anxiety presented this film are in the savagery of its conception and the intolerable art <laughs> Of its sound. <laughs> it is thrown and howled at the audience as though the only purpose was to overwhelm the naturally curious patron with an excess of brutal stimuli. And this is betrayed not only in the morbidity of many scenes, but in the violence of the noises that are brayed from the theater's screen and walls. The intended effect of having sounds come from areas in which they would naturally develop in relation to the images on the screen, such as the voice of an actor out of the frame to the left coming from that side wall, is not only confusing, but incongruous with the visual illusion of the screen. It is as though someone were speaking from a box or stage wings with no relation whatsoever to the (laughs) images before the eyes. The mechanical distraction of it may wear off with time if this sort of thing is repeated, but it is disturbing and almost comical now. Likewise, the noisy sound of footsteps clattering in the back of the theater a moment after an actor has appeared to rush (laughs) forward from the screen is completely illogical and unnerving. It sounds like a riot outside.
0: I think I almost peed my pants. (laughs) it's it's one of two things, Marshall. It's either James Adomian playing Frederick Nietzsche on Dead Authors Podcast, or it's Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Man. I just,
1: with, with the quote by itself, and then I actually read the quote, and then I looked back to see what this person's name was. The only thing I could see in my head was the walrus character from Disney's... <laughs> Alice in Wonderland is <laughs> like, that's just what this guy looks like and who he is is. Uh, so yeah, yes, this,
0: this is all kinds of crazy. Like, yeah, he does not, you know, we should do, you know what we should do, Marshall? We should do an episode dedicated to Bosley Crowther. We really should and really talk about uh uh because I, I'm looking through him now. One of the things that, really kicked his career off into being put into obscurity is his review of Bonnie and Clyde, where he called it cheap, a cheap piece of bald faced slapstick comedy. <laughs> and yeah. Wow. Uh, and, uh, uh, so yeah, he, but he got, he got admonished for that. And, um, so yeah, it, I think I'm going to work my ass off on making a Bosley Crowther episode happen. That's going to have to happen now. Cause this is, he's been too much of the source of my ire <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I, I guess I'm just not picking movies he likes. Um, now back to house of wax though. Uh, variety was much more excited about the movie. Uh, they called it, uh, they said this picture will knock him for a ghoul. Uh, Warner's house of wax is the post mid-century jazz singer. What the, fr- what the fairs and Al Jolson did to sound the Warner's have repeated it in third dimension. Um, and, uh, the, uh, as far as the 3d is concerned, um, uh, one review said it's a first rate thriller of its kind and the best 3d picture may- yet made. Uh, well, they didn't have much to choose from yet. Um, uh, and, but they said that the 3d film is much smoother than its uh, predecessors, obviously made with more care and less tiring to the eyes. Um, uh, But that in all technical respects, that the film is childish and an epic piece of work. (laughs) Uh, So I don't think everybody's, I think everybody's on our front of like, they're not jiving with the story necessarily, but they're jiving with the tech. But unlike them, we can appreciate a plot like House of Wax because it has roots in what we still see today. And... I think our ability to appreciate uh, horror films with the, the with these very bare and basic plots um, is much more uh, reasonable than it was maybe back then. I don't know because, like, again, I I, I do think the last five to seven years has proven that the uh, uh, the level of horror. And how people receive it has changed people's impression of the genre that it didn't it didn't have that kind of consideration before. Um, uh, And in terms of House of Wax and its standing, it has an interesting legacy after the fact. Um, First of all, let's get this out of the way. The film uh, does still hold very high regard for a lot of people in spite of its modern, uh, its contemporary reception. Uh, the current Rotten Tomatoes um, rating is 95% based on 39 reviews, which is usually a mix of uh, mostly more of the recent 20 years, people reviewing it in retrospect. Um, but on a budget of $1 million, the movie made $23.75 million. Um, it was a ch- chart-topping hit for five weeks um, and earned basically over $5.5 million in rentals alone within its first run um as mentioned before the original stereophonic track um not every theater was able to equip themselves with it and would default to the standard mono optical soundtrack um and uh much like today these were a lot of a lot of these ones were used to develop them in specialty cinemas um and uh the uh the the film Grew in reputation, and I think a lot of that ends up being because of Vincent Price's participation in it. Um, because at a certain point, the 3D goes away for a, a whole generation, and you're left with just the 2D version of it. Um, and Vincent Price's career goes from him playing these secondary character parts and these, uh, you know, random figures in films, um, regardless of how high end they are, like Laura. Um, He then becomes a huge star in the horror realm to the point where, you know, William Castle, nearly nearly all of William Castle's filmography of his biggest hits involve Vincent Price, whether it's House on Haunted Hill or The Tingler. Um, And he he left an impression of horror being fun and giddy. And I think House of Wax is a great testament film to what he could do in the genre. Um, and as far as House of Wax itself, the movie has ended up being remade
1: other in other forms and fashions. Um, that's, that's the thing I wanted to to speak to just in terms of, you know, the, the, the film itself is, you know, I, I would, uh, not, no one would have to twist my arm to kind of dive deep into the the failings of the film from a story structure standpoint um but i think that thematically and um almost every individual piece of the film by itself are incredible um and extremely fascinating and amazing and and are are very ripe for um dissection and diving into um and it it and i i am so when typically when i see a film like this that is is where the sum of its parts are greater than what it ultimately ended up becoming in in my opinion i'm always driven to like sit down and devote some time to like well if i were to do a remake or a modern retelling of this what would i do but one of the things that's so tough about this film is that which I think that you know, as we're about to kind of go into the remakes and, and other films of this of this, uh, of its type, is that the concept of a waxworks is gone as a cultural phenomenon. Like even Ripley believe it, Ripley's Believe It or Not is not really a a well known thing as an a, as a sort of a destination visit, like a museum or something like that to go to. And so, without the cultural context of a waxworks it's really kind of hard to, to shape a story that's that, uh, whose hub is one. Well, and I think that, I mean, and even
0: Madame Tussauds for any, uh, legacy it still possesses. I feel like whatever impact it has is like significantly diminished to the point of like, it's just one of many things you can see in Hollywood at this point. Um, And I feel like this ends up being the case when it comes to other folks trying to capitalize on this concept, because there is the film Waxwork. um, But I think the more obvious one for us is that there was a House of Wax remake uh, in 2005, which um, is a loose remake. And what you alluded to me on it is that it's more like a remake of Tourist Trap, which is a movie that I haven't seen. Um, yes, but... I,
1: I haven't seen it either, but yeah, the 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 quote unquote remake of House of Wax, uh, most famously starring Paris Hilton, um, is um, is actually a remake of Tourist Trap. They just used the title of House of Wax because they thought it would have more appeal and would be more widely known than than Tourist Trap was. And really, the only piece of of any sort of allusion to the original in the remake is that one of the lead character's name is vincent other than that it's uh and and obviously there's a wax works in the in the film but other than that there's really no nothing that survives from the structure of the film yeah
0: and it's a uh it's a film that takes place more in a ghost town than anything else so while it appropriately addresses the fact that a wax museum would be relegated to that kind of ghost era ghost town kind of aesthetic we are dealing with an era in horror film that was uh, not riddled with in a negative context, but just like the predominant amount of uh, your horror imagery and your horror villains would come from a backwater kind of scenario. Um, uh, uh, I want to say like, like there's like a hillbilly inflection to it. Obviously the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, uh, further kick this and kick this really into the stratosphere and then you have uh that in combination with Rob Zombie doing House of a Thousand Corpses and then the same year as House of Wax is Devil's Rejects. And so there is a kind of a permeation of these are the villains that you do for this kind of movie. Um but th- but that's a trend that kind of passed pretty quickly. Um, I think with House of Wax, I think like the thing that you would want out of it is to set it in a period like the way the movie that we just talked about does, because I think it's important in order to kind of give it like you want to, one of the things that I like about house of wax is it does set up the importance as to why a wax museum would be popular in its era. Like, they talk about the fact that there's another wax museum across the street doing bigger business because it shows crimes of the day and morbid things and whatnot and wax museums were a were one of many outlets for an era that didn't really have you know mass mass media to provide images of macabre and terror for them um, yeah
1: i think if i think that's yeah it's a good point i think that if if you were to do it as a period piece and then use the wax works as a direct analogy to um, theater going modern in modern day, um, that there would be a lot to kind of, um, to say with that allegory of just sort of the art house theater, um, versus the, you know, big budget Marvel DC tentpole films. Um, and you could dive into, to using that as your sort of like world frame
0: right and i and i think that like i mean honestly if even if you wanted to take it out of the wax museum and do something even more interesting with it make it about the grand guel and these ideas of like you know like slideshows that combine with theatrics create the first amounts of mass media mass media storytelling um or you do as you said, if you wanted to do a modern version of it, like, you know, like have it be a like a uh, a demented uh, art house or whatever, like something like that, if you really wanted to lay into a modern allegory. But if you're talking about a waxworks, it's very specific. And I think that the reason you get away with it, even in the 50s with this remake and have a movie like House of Wax that we could still enjoy is because... It's not so much the subject because the subject is more more trending towards either a mystery film or an outright gory horror movie is that you have Vincent Price and you have Andre de Toth, who is is very passionate about the technology that he's wanting to use. And this is a movie that I do regret that we recorded this episode without me seeing it uh, in 3D. However, I I'm, I'm, I think it's it's uh, constitutes grounds for a follow up episode down the line once uh, COVID has uh provided a better opportunity for people to hang out at people's houses for, you know, casual casual fare. Yeah. Um, I
1: mean, I would love to sort of wrap it into a a general sort of like heyday of 3D because um there are a couple of distributors that have been working in conjunction with I believe it's the three D film archives that have been doing pretty extensive restorations on uh the sort of fifty three, fifty four era three D films. Mm-hmm. Um as well as actually some of the the, the 3D kind of the reemergence of it in the 80s, but specifically to the um, theme of the podcast to kind of do a a general sort of that flash in the pan of 3D pandemonium in the 50s would be an interesting topic to explore.
0: Right. I think that there's uh, I think when it comes to 3D films, I think one of the things that in order to keep it as the art that it is, it's interesting that in a world where COVID has decimated the majority of the theater going and I, me being somebody who has gone to the theaters as they've reopened, I notice that the audience is diminished because one, because of the occupancy rate, but two, just because of, you know, the ability to access it at home now um, is that if things are more on a steady plateau in the near future, that if you bring people back to the movie 3d might one of those things to do it again I don't know Um, but um, hopefully uh, the art of 3D doesn't get lost in the process of us you know trending away from the theatrical experience or at the very least making 3D TVs and 3D players a little bit more accessible or something I don't know exactly how that happens because I don't know if that market just completely tanked or not
1: Um, well yeah I mean I think that it's Um, on, on the sad side, I think that, you know, you have, uh, studios like cough, cough Disney, um, Mm -hmm. actively trying to destroy 3d, um, that I just like, I, I do not understand. I will never understand. Um, and I really despise them for it. Um, but then on the other hand, you do have a studio like shocker, the one we're talking about Warner brothers, that, um, even despite there not being an exhibition, um, avenue for it, like they did a 3D conversion of Wonder Woman 1984 and are releasing a Wonder Woman 1984 3D Blu ray. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some people who are still taking advantage of it. And, you know, like the 3D Film Archive is still doing work on stuff, and there are some, um, some distributors who are still just like trying their damnedest to to keep the world alive um i know that uh vinegar syndrome just released their first 3D film uh a couple of months ago it was uh, the name of it is escaping me at this exact moment it was silent something silent madness um that they they worked with i believe it was actually the 3d film archive um and restored an old 1980s classic like the again the the reemergence of 3d so there are some people that are trying to keep it alive it's just i think that you know people are turned off by the glasses and um and i think that it's uh they're turned off by filmmakers using it as a gimmick to make money as opposed to a different way to to tell a story and um I know that for a while there, there was talk of working on 3D technology that was not going to require glasses. And I imagine that that is something that James Cameron is probably working extremely extensively on because by the time Avatar 234 ever come out, um, I'm sure that that's gonna definitely be a thing that he is gonna want to bring to the forefront to try to get 3D back on, on the radar again.
0: But in order, but in order for that to happen, Marshall, those movies have to exist, and I still don't believe they exist. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Avatar took twenty years, so give it time. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm sure. But by the time I'm ninety, I'll have seen it. I'll be like, was it worth the wait? <laughs> die. <laughs> <laughs> um. But Marshall, on that note, I want to thank you for coming on and talking for uh, talking to us about House of Wax. You um. Bet. And I want you back. I want you back to talk about Buana Devil, the origin point, and we'll delve delve further into Milton Gunsberg's uh story and all this. Absolutely. Um, well, Zach, we'll thank you so Marshall much. Ober.
1: Thank you so so much for having me. It was a joy as always, and I would just mm-hmm. like to leave everyone with the gentle reminder that they always want a body
0: yes <laughs> they always want a body yes it's so inconvenient when it comes to uh the uh the 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 acquisition of your uh insurance fraud <laughs> <laughs> um and also really quickly by the time this episode comes out you will have a website uh if you want to i pl- uh, would love for you to tell people where they can find out more about you
1: oh yes it, it will be at marshallrosales.com. awesome
0: perfect um, so, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. We will have Marshall back for Buana Devil. And I believe we'll also have him back for another Shamley Supplements because I can't not talk about Hitch with Marshall. It's just, it's too embedded in me at this point. Uh, but until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.